Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for Monday, March the 19th. Today's guest is going to be Aaron Stevenson, and you met him in our episode of Double Trouble, where we talked about child sex trafficking with his uh, partner in crime at this point, uh, Tara Rhodes. But uh, today we're going to have a kind of a different episode. We're going to dig into some things that he saw while he was at DHS, things that he saw before that, his background in the Marine Corps and uh, going overseas and then working as a contractor. And so some of those things are going to lead into, I think, a very insightful experience of what happened during the failed Afghan withdrawal in August of 2021. I think uh, we are now seeing some of the results of that, and hopefully we don't see it in a more kinetic way, but I want him to be able to kind of share with you guys some of the intel um, and some of the concerns and warnings that need to be out there that you need to have in your back pocket when you talk about failures of this Biden administration, which are significant. Um, the data and having that information is going to be really critical to being able to speak to it in credible ways. Um, before we do that, I want to say thanks to Patriot Coolers, who is our sponsor. I'm going to run over to a promo that I made real quick, and then we're going to jump right into this interview. It may go long. I have no idea how long it's going to go. So if it goes real long, you might want to break this thing up into some bite-sized pieces over the week. And we do appreciate it. So um, let's listen to this from Patriot Coolers. We want to thank Patriot Coolers for sponsoring the Kyle Serafin Show this month. I carried their first generation tumbler on surveillance in a dozen states since 2017. Right now, you can use promo code Kyle to get 10% off and free shipping over $50. Now, we all want a hot or a cold beverage to stay that way, hot or cold. These days, I carry a 30-ounce tumbler for smoothies, and I have a 19-ounce coffee mug on my desk when I'm recording. If I'm out with my kids, I've got the one-gallon jug so I can refill their water bottles and keep them cool. Spring is upon us, and summer is coming soon. If you are in the market for a high-quality piece of outdoor gear that's going to last and support your values, please check out PatriotCoolers.com for either a hard or soft-sided cooler. If you're doing an RV trip, you're floating the river, making a long Costco run, or you're sitting on surveillance, check out PatriotCoolers.com. Your purchase is going to support our show and disabled vets. Patriot Coolers has given nearly $400,000 to updating the homes of post-9-11 disabled vets so that they can enjoy the liberty and freedom at home that they fought for over there. Again, use promo code KYLE for 10% off, and shipping over $50 is always free. Thanks for checking them out, y'all. Okay, and without further ado, I'm going to bring on our guest. So let me pull him in right now, and we're going to say welcome to Aaron Stevenson. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? I'm well, and I've got my Patriot coolers. Um, this is my hot tumbler, which I always keep next to me when I'm doing my recording here. Um, so first of all, I noticed you don't have your uh, your handle on there. I'm going to plug that right away. People, if you're not following Aaron on social media, you can do so at called underscore out underscore DHS, like the entity, called out DHS with underscores in between on both Truth and on Twitter. And uh, and you and I follow each other there. But moreover, I see a lot of the stuff that you have to put out there is a um, pretty good way in. And it comes from somebody who has lived inside the administrative state and dealt with the administrative state the same way that I did. So um, folks, follow him there. Aaron, what uh, what do you think? Are we are we in a good spot right now? Is this country looking pretty good from where you're sitting? No. Definitely not. Um, the people, yes. I do think that as far as Americans, um, we're, they're really kind of starting to wake up. 2020 was in a, you know, there's always a silver lining, right? It was a horrible year. A lot of bad things happened, but the whole veil came down, I think. And a lot of people really kind of started to realize like something's wrong here. 
and it hasn't stopped. But a lot of people, I think, just we're getting kind of back to the basics of who we are as a human being and who we are as Americans. But on top of that, I think we're really starting to understand who we are more spiritually as well, but also like what makes America Americans. Um, so yeah, I think it's been a good thing, but yeah, as far as the government, bad, bad government stuff. Um, it's mentioned, it's interesting. You mentioned spirituality. I know a lot of people consider this, uh, this sort of ongoing resistance to what the government's been up to as kind of a spiritual war. And, um, if my memory serves, you kind of had a different spiritual awakening, probably like a lot of people did as, as the last couple of years have kicked off, it's given people focus. I see a lot more people talking about faith being the thing that sustains them which is indicative of difficult times. Do you mind talking about that just a little bit? Um, you don't have to get into it too deep if you don't want to. No, yeah. Um, so after Iraq, I was kind of like, you know, whatever. And kind of like during Afghanistan, that's when I'd be, I'd, I was a self-declared atheist. And I was that for like 10 straight years almost. And um, it was 2020. I just, you know, hey, the government, you locked me down. So I was sitting around thinking. And I just saw like, you know, obviously the reactions to a lot of things how society was kind of operating, what was going on. And I just looked around and I was like, there's one common denominator with everything going on right now. And this is basically a very godless like thing happening with all these people. And just made me start thinking like, all right, well, who am I? Like, let's, let's really get into who am I? When am I? Where am I? That whole thing. And so I started questioning, you know, okay, well, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a son, I'm a friend. I'm a, you know, I was in the Marines. I was, I'm just kind of going through the checklist. And I was like, well, I'm an atheist. I was like, well, what does that even mean? And I just really kind of, I, as an analyst, so I started going through my arguments and going through all my, you know, and I realized like, I think I've, I've made a, I think I'm wrong. Like my arguments are actually really, really weak. And I just kind of ran with it. I started reading more. I talked to people. Um, I watched a lot of, you know, documentaries and just all kinds of things. Um, can I do a quick promo? Yeah, for sure. Dr. Taylor Marshall. He's a major, major, uh, helping hand, I will say. Um, and yeah, it's kind of, you know, went back to church and started going and I got baptized, got chrismated, got my communion, the whole thing. Um, Eastern Orthodox, sorry, doc, but it's, you know, it's, it's where I am right now. And I'm, I'm obviously very, very grateful for everything. Did you grow up with uh, any faith in your house or was that something that you came to literally in 2020? Yeah, not really. Um, I mean, you know, parents are Christians. My dad was Catholic. Mom was like a Protestant type thing, but we didn't, we, I remember going to church as a kid. I remember a, like a pastor coming over when I was like maybe young, I was like five and they were like doing the whole like blessing of a house. That was it. I didn't know what Easter was, um, honestly, until like probably I was an adult. <laughs> I had no idea what it was. Yeah. And then I learned. So what was it about, uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall's videos? And I, and he's reached out to me and I, at some point I'll probably be on his podcast. I think he's invited me on. So if assuming the offer stands, Please. we'll do it. Um, what was it about his message that rang so true to you that gave you something for, I mean, because I think a lot of people have folks that either have doubts that are agnostics that are either, you know, sort of departed Christians that have walked away and, or maybe they had nothing like my wife. Um, what, what do you think that like really struck with you there? It was definitely the way he's able to convey not only the theology, but also the history behind it. That's one thing about me. I'm very um, historical. I'm very logic based. And I got read the Bible, and that's what you know that brought me to be an atheist. But it's like also like yeah, I've also run it with a bent angle. I didn't look at it unbiased. I didn't look at it objectively, and I didn't look at any other history. Like I didn't really know more any other more like Christian history or Catholic history, Orthodox history at all. Yeah. Um, one of the like last things that kind of brought me over was when I learned that like of all the twelve apostles, like eleven were tortured to death, 
And it's just like, all right, there, there's a pattern of behavior there. These dudes aren't giving in. It's like, that's, that's a sign for me. You know, it's like, yeah, I think it was legit. I think it was real. Right. And when I started, when I started praying about stuff and I started actually, you know, okay, I'll, I'll take my next steps now then. I actually started feeling a difference, like feeling not just like in my head, like how I oh, feel better, but like it, how I felt inside. And I was just like, yeah, I think a soul is a real thing. Like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm so, <laughs> and I was like, wow, I'm way off. How, how awkward is that? Like, you know, because you, you, you live your life a whole way. You don't talk about this kind of thing, especially because you and I are pretty close in age and, and we grew up kind of in the 80s and the 90s when like you, you didn't really discuss this. It wasn't, it wasn't dinner table conversation. It wasn't like strangers yeah. wouldn't have this conversation although you probably could do it today in a way that you couldn't do previously and and then you're like um now i'm talking about it in a potentially national forum i'm out there like identifying myself this way on a twitter where people from all over the world could know what i'm about like how how weird is that for our for our age bracket it's i think it's a sign of the times um but it is it is a stark difference though because again this was not dinner table conversation when i was a kid but with my kids it's like we watched, you know, Passion of the Christ and like I'm stopping it, giving them history. This is the part of the Bible and we're we're going through it. My kids loved it. And it's yeah. just it's not to say that it, my parents didn't raise me in a whatever way, but it's just like I think it's a sign of the times where we're, we're kind of getting tested in a few different ways. And it shows you, I think, like, OK, this is this is our source. This is our our, our rock to stand on that can like, help us out with things. And just that took a little bit of pressure. And it shows you how I think fast and quick we are to run back home, which is obviously to God. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's like, wow, this is this is a legit thing, I think. So I'm again I'm grateful for it. It's good. You mentioned uh that the eleven of the twelve were tortured to death for their faith, and that's known as red martyrdom. I've I've been learning a little bit about this because I've been also following some some folks that I it, you know, martyrdom wasn't really a discussion that happened when I went even through um through Catholic uh, grade school and high school and middle school and these kind of things. I, I don't know. Like, I, like you don't have to worry about that. But today it's more of a real, it's a real possibility, not so much the red martyrdom, which is giving your life, but uh, the white martyrdom where you give your social standing, where you lose your paycheck. And I know a lot of people, uh, including the folks that I dealt with in the FBI, uh, and I, I would consider myself in one of those. It's like, I took a stand. The stand may not be everybody's stand, but it's mine and you can't take it and uh, you lose things over it. And I think that you're one of the guys who did the same thing because you saw something that was wrong. It was immoral. It was unjust and or unjust rather. And then uh, and that makes you sort of a white martyr, which is probably not a thing that you would consider yourself until you, someone puts it on you. And then you go, yeah, I, I am willing to lose things that are comforting and lose things that are social status uh, because because there are beliefs that, that are more important than your job and your paycheck. Yeah. Yeah, I never would have thought that, actually, as you said it, because I just, I don't know, I never would have thought that. But, um, yeah, because what I, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I could have, like, you know, went to the Office of Inspector General and filed a report, and it would have taken months, but there would have been no outcome out of that. Um, and that's why I was just like, no, I'm, gonna go, I'm going to Project Veritas now about this because it's going to have to go out quickly. And I'm glad I did because that's how Tara saw it. And then all of a sudden, Tara's like, oh, geez, this is actually happening. And ki she did know cases that because of them, they were pulling kids out and putting them into long-term care out of the trafficking situation. So it's like, that's worth it. it the, the whole thing's worth it. I, I really don't care anymore about – and yeah, being a Fed is a comfortable job, but it's like it doesn't matter. It's like it's it's not that comfortable to where I can take that from somebody else. Right. And especially with my children and their future. It's like, no, I showed them what's right, what's wrong. And it's like, no, you will act on it. You will do the right thing because you have to. So, and they'll and they'll always have that uh, that calibration for their compass. 
they'll always know which way, like the right way was. They may not always do it, but they know what it is. And as long as your compass is calibrated, you can always make it back to the path, which is kind of interesting. Um, That's going to give me a little bit of a segue to talk about your background. I want to dig a little bit deeper in. We talked about how you were a Marine for eight years. Folks, if you didn't watch Double Trouble, um, I only remembered the name of it because I had two people on. It was the first time I did two guests. Um, But if you haven't seen that episode of our our podcast, go back a couple weeks. It's about uh, two weeks, maybe, or three weeks. And uh, and you can watch that. I think you'll find it illuminating. This is going to be a little bit easier because there's two of us. And uh, and you sound great, by the way. I think it sounds awesome. I'm glad you got some ears. It all looks good. You're the man. Um, I, yeah, I think the message is so important that you get this thing out. So I want to dig into your Marine Corps past. You were an Intel guy. What did that look like? What was your on-the-ground job when you were domestic? What did it look like when you were overseas? Because I know you did that a couple times. Kind of give people a, a glimpse into being a Marine Corps Intel troop. Well, so um, there's obviously a, a, an array of intelligence, um, and also I'm enlisted. I was never an officer, mm-hmm. but um, which means you did so real work. So I was work. actually in what's called, yeah. <laughs> so I was in um, what's called intelligence battalion. So we had you know all components of intelligence with us, uh, and we also had like you know a sister battalion with us um, or next to us at least called radio battalion. They did SIGINT, but my job was called uh, all source intelligence analyst. So our job was basically to, you know, in, in traditional military intelligence, you're there to receive information, whether it be imagery and you know satellite photographs. You can receive reports of you know measurements and signals and more technical things. And then you're there to basically assist the commander in reducing his confusion. That's what traditional military intelligence is. You make the commander less confused. Um, right in Afghanistan and this whole new 20th, 21st century warfare, it's not traditional military intelligence because the enemy is different. The battle space is a little bit different. Those kind of come and go, but the enemy itself it was different. You were fighting an insurgency, not a traditional standing army. So for the Iraq campaign, when they first invaded, I, I wasn't there. But over time, it's like you can see how Iraq kind of got divvied up. You have Al-Qaeda. You've got um, Iranian-influenced militias like Jaysh al-Mahdi. Um, these things kind of morph over time. Names change. Then you have like ex-Bathis. So it was a complex battle space, and it was never very easy. But I would say that, to be fair, there was a lot of professionalism uh, from the list of the officer ranks that did a great job at it. But so stateside, we were on a, a known rotation schedule. So we were basically home six months, gone six months, home six months, gone six months. So the home six months, you got to do your standard Marine Corps training. So we had to do like a PFT, uh, uh, a strength test. Um, we had to do uh, acronyms, I know. <laughs> no, I think like a lot of people range. know, yeah, the physical fitness test. Um, but yeah, and is what's the Marines look like just for, just for, uh, so a glimpse. to get a perfect score, um, you have to get 20 pull-ups, um, hundred crunches and a three mile run within, within under 18 minutes. And then everything that you don't do. So that's like you you start there at the perfect score and whatever you don't get, your score just goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting a first class PFT is like the standard. I think you have to get a 245 and above. It's really not that difficult. Usually I average around like probably 260, 270. My highest was a 290 something. I can never get the 18, the 18 minute run, the three miles. I can That's never do smoking it. fast. I'm, I'm sh- Six minute miles is I'm falling. short. Yeah, I'm, I'm 5'9". I'm a sprinter. I'm deadly in the sprint game. I am not a long distance guy. I got short femurs. This is the way it is. I'm Neanderthal. I'm shorter um, than you are. So yeah, don't, don't even. I'm like a dwarf, <laughs> uh, dangerous over short distances, right? Exactly. Um, that's what matters though. So uh, it was just that, but like we would str- we try to stay up to date with obviously, you know, r- the reporting flows. You, you don't want to ever drop off whatever, but there was also like an operational cycle as well. So we were always gone in the summertime. 
So we'd be gone from like March to like maybe late September, early October. And then the East Coast unit, they would come because I was on the West Coast. We would just kind of rotate in and out. And that's how it worked. So wintertime, the tax, it was, it was still a bad place. But the tax would kind of go down because, you know, the weather's cold. And it was just a situational thing. We could come back in the summertime. They kind of ramp up again. And that was like the pattern of the flow. By 07, that changed dramatically or dramatically because uh, the Marine Corps was employing a new thing where they're really engaging the populace. Uh, this And this was called the Sahawa or which the... I think it means the awakening, but like they hit the, all the Sunni tribes in El Anbar province, which is west of Baghdad. And they were like, Al Qaeda hates you guys. They are using you guys. We don't want to dominate you guys. We just want to like get some peace, stability, return to normalization. And you guys go on your way and be a happy little democracy. So it's a flawed concept too, because that whole cultural thing, but it was like, we don't mess with you guys. And for years there was a struggle. Um, Al Qaeda got sympathy because they would come into like the market and control bread prices, which sounds like, you know, that's communism. It's like, yeah. And starving people were eating. So that's sympathy points right away. Right. So there, yeah. This, I mean, this falls into the, the, the quote unquote hearts and minds. You, you call it the awakening, but, uh, people that were back home kind of knew of it as the hearts and minds campaign, uh, the sort of the softer version, but did you? What was your role in that as intelligence? What were you guys doing specifically to kind of aid that mission set? If somebody else was out there uh, dropping pamphlets or doing psyops or whatever the things that you know the other yeah. units type do. So this was uh, we called a SASO, uh, so stability and security operations, security and stability operations. And what we would do is just to literally try to keep any kind of like combat and fighting gone. So we was almost it was almost like a police force type thing. We had Iraqi police, we had Iraqi army. There was um, other Iraqi security forces, but we were kind of there to hold their hand and walk them along. Mm-hmm. And we had to play catch up because um, the U.S. government decided to fire the entire Iraqi army after 03 when the, the war was over. It's like, yeah, that was a bad idea, guys, because a lot of those dudes joined the fight. They had to get money, right? So we did a pretty good job. And what we did as intelligence was it was basically mostly threat reporting. We'd come in and find out. So if we had any human sources or human intelligence sources. They would come and tell our collectors, like, you know, this is what's going on in the city. We were able to collect, obviously, signals intelligence. Um, but we would also just send out patrols and, you know, get a get a feel of the land. You have to, you have to actually engage the population. You can't just spy on them. You have to talk with them. Turns out. And so, <laughs> yeah, right? And, um, yeah, so we would just kind of get an understanding of what's going on in their lives and then continue the security operations. So we were still fighting al-Qaeda. We were still fighting bad guys. By 07 and 08, it really kind of changed and um speaking of hearts and minds so there's two kinds of missions for winning hearts and minds you have the 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 people the populace which you you want to win their hearts and minds then you're supporting also though like you know targeted raids where it's two in the heart and one in the mind so (laughs) that's funny that's a very don't be a bad guy and yeah yeah. Um, what sort of then, uh, what sort of other government agencies were you interfaced within at that time? Because I have to imagine everybody's over there. Everyone's got their hand in the pie, right? Yeah, but so I was supporting uh, an infantry battalion, uh, first light armor reconnaissance, um, and I was also supporting a, a different regimental combat team. But we would and we would still be in the information flow for uh, like CIA reporting, um, obviously some NSA reporting, but it wasn't like we were operating hand in hand. Like we were in a very small you know, Ford operating base, a FOB, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we would get the reporting, but we weren't like sitting with the like super spies or anything like that. We would operate a lot of combined stuff though. So we shared an operational border with the army. 
So we had to establish communications and a rapport and like kind of be cool with everybody. Um, SEAL teams would come in and they'd be able to operate in our area if they had to get bad guys. And they were always the funnest ones to work with because, you know, they're SEALs. They're, they're, they're awesome. They're, they're good dudes and they're good at what they do, but it's like their mission for that time was just, you know, like get bad guys. So yeah, they were, they were really of, cool. They, they were, taught us a lot about intelligence with like more of along the black ops type thing. And it was kind of fun to, to learn that and like, okay, how do you guys operate? How do you guys do these things? Did they come they in with their own Intel guys? And, yeah, they did. And, but they, they were great though. They would, they would really teach you like, um, like how they operate in a certain, a few senses of like, yeah, you actually want to find this kind of information. If you see these trends, that's what it's looking at. No, don't worry about those dudes. They're fine. Who cares about those guys? So it's like, you'd really kind of learn like, like, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, this, this makes sense. And that would help us out when we were again, like reengaging the population. So that way when you're going through the desert and you come across like a couple dudes and they've got their like, you know, their gas canisters and some people would be like, you know, they're making a bomb. And they'd be like, no, they live in the desert. <laughs> it's like, do you ever go camping? You have to bring gas. You know, it's just like, oh yeah. So they were really good. A lot of those things they helped us out a lot. And um, that was kind of fun. In 08, the war was, for us was really dying down in Anbar. Uh, so we did kind of some like support operations still. Um, I went up north for a little bit to uh, outside of Mosul. It was an area called Sinjar and Arabat because that was a lot of smuggling coming in. A lot of a lot of weapons proliferation, a lot of smuggling, a lot of foreign fighter facilitation. And we were trying to understand that one. Um, and so that we were working a lot less on the ground and we were working more kind of more on the like operation centers. But that was fun too, because then you get to learn like, you know, all right, I've done the tactical operations. Now we're doing more of like an operational size thing. Cause you have three levels of intelligence. You have tactical, which is like your day-to-day -day small stuff. Operational, which is more like a, an area, like a think of like a state, right? But then strategic is like your smart dudes that are thinking from 30,000 feet. Like, you know, what's the world look like in five years? Mm -hmm. And so the operational lens is great because, you know, we're, we're seeing different battle spaces and how they operate and trying to get an understanding of, all right, what's, what's going on that everyone's involved here. And uh, so one great thing we did was we established to find the actual pattern of how these dudes are coming in. So we did like a big berm study because there was a, it's a huge berm um, as a border between Iraq and Syria out West. It's not like there's a border wall. When but you say like a berm, you mean like, like a pile of it. dirt? So we find out. It's like just a, yeah, like, like bulldozers just, and they make this thing. Okay. And then obviously you know, smugglers too. It's not like they were just bad guys because they would be bringing in goods and stuff. They'd break a berm and they'd just be able to drive through it over time. And so we were trying to find out where all the, like how they're getting from this part of Syria to these parts of Iraq and they're skipping past us. We know they're going through the desert. So we did a few different ways to collect information. We did kind of like long-term, like nighttime searches to look for, you know, um, non-artificial light. So like campfires and stuff. Um, we would look at, just look at the map. Where are all the natural watering holes? Where are the natural water springs? Because you're in a desert. It's going to take you a few days. You got to have water. And then um, we finally then collected uh, some dude had his GPS and like he had every single waypoint. And we, when we detained the guy, it's like we had that. We mapped it out and it's like, oh, cool. It's actually literally everywhere we're looking at right now. So it was, it was cool to kind of put things together like that. We're working more with like, you know, imagery intelligence and like understanding how they like how, you know, elliptics work and the collection platforms. It's, it was really kind of fun. And, and that's then, what you um, called operational. Is that correct? So tactical being ground level you know, day-to-day -day operations, operational being the next step up. That's what you were doing there, looking at an area, trying to see the, the issues in that, in that particular region. Yeah. And that was, and that was able to support the commander at a, at a more of like a theater level uh, type thing. So that way he could understand like, 
okay, we, uh, these are my missions. There's bad guys, how they're getting here. There's this, how's that happening? And we were able to tell him like, the bad guys are coming through here. And then he can go, all right, thanks. And he can figure out his job. Um, but we would still, you know, every now and then get pulled out to support. So in 08, if you want to hear a quick little story, mm-hmm. um, we got a call from, uh, I forgot the Marine unit who's out there, but it was in al And al is in the way west part of uh, Iraq. It borders um, Syria. So it's a port of entry. And it took years for this thing to open up because of funding and corruption, whatever else. So economically, these dudes were hurting, right? But this, they're kind of getting along now. They're kind of moving along. And this is now in uh, the summer of 08. So the war is like really kind of starting to not die down, but it's like they're get, they're knowing that we're leaving soon. And it's not a shock there. And so there was this really bad dude out there. Um, I can say his name. He's on, he's on the internet. His name is Badron Turkey. Um, <laughs> I like that you were ready to censor yourself. Was, That's good. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was actually in the Iraqi army during when we invaded. And he was serving with his best friend. This is like, it's like a Scorsese movie. And these two dudes were like units together, right? Well, then we break up the army and then it kind of goes away. And then Badran is like, the Americans are evil. They came here and they're ruining our lives. So he joins like the resistance. This other guy is like, they are, but I want to help out my country. So, and I want to help out my people really. So he joined the local police force. And so you have, again, it's one of those stories where it's like, you know, good friends, but oh, they become, you know, like enemies now. And so it's actually a really upsetting story. So we get a call that over the, you know, in the morning that overnight this unit came in and I'll tell the story as, as I learned it. This unit came in and they're dressed as Americans. They're dressed like as special forces. So they were like unblast boots. They were wearing like the cooler helmets. They had like the, the totally decked out M4, you know, the, the proper MVGs, the everything. Right. And they go to this one little police outpost and they were like, Hey guys, we're doing an operation tonight. Like we got to go find some, you know, some Al Qaeda guys. You guys got to join us. Hey guys, get your gear, get some of our good stuff, and we're gonna get you guys ready to roll. And they went around a few different police stations, and they were grabbing Iraqi police doing this. And they were they were coming off. And I told we talked to the locals that were they were like, yeah, we saw this unit come in. We thought it was you guys, so we didn't call anybody because we thought it was Americans. They were look at them. They were Americans. They were dressed in all American uniforms. And so they rounded up around I think like fifteen or twenty Iraqi police. And the minute they got them, they got them outside. They just, you know, knocked them out, backed them up, tied them up, and they, they took them off to the desert. And they decapitated every single dude. And what they did out there is they would cut the head off, but they would put it, like, on the chest. Like, so that way it was, like, the dude's head is laying on top of his chest. And it's one of those things where it's, like, it's horrible to see. It's really, really, like, disturbing. And it makes the people also go just, like, you know, I, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, that's that's it for me. I'm done. Yeah, and, very um, visually jarring, so, but also you know, kind of like yeah. that. And it stays with people, I'm sure. Definitely. Um, and so this Iraqi, he was a lieutenant now, the guy that was best friends with Bob on Turkey. He was one of them. And there was like, I think 14, I think it was like 14 or 16 guys. That number's popping my head. But one of the dudes actually got away because as they were like cutting the heads off, he can hear everything. He's like, I'm, I'm, he takes off running. He gets shot. He gets shot up. But we were able to find him and we actually were able to save him. That's how we got all the information out of everything. And he was getting debriefed and he was like, you know, explaining, he's like, guys, this, we thought these were Americans. Like, you know, they were talking like you guys, like, go, go, go. And it turns out it looks like it was obviously a foreign, probably intelligence service, we think. But it was definitely some kind of foreign asset that came in and did this. Um, and that really shook the population. Like, that was a really bad day because there was a lot of people in the area. They're just coming back. Like, they're kind of starting to become a site again. And all of a sudden this happened. It, it was really upsetting for people. So that sucked. Um, but then 
think it was maybe a few months later, or maybe it was in 2009. Uh, we did kill the guy, bought on Turkey. That was the the Syrian wedding you know wedding raid. You can watch it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It, that was the guy. It, that's who got killed. Um, and it's it's hard to talk about it because it's like you know th- these are people, these are human beings, and it was one of those things where it was just like you know. Yeah, the war still. This is like us kind of slowing down the war, and it's like, no, nah, that thing's still going for them. And later in that deployment, right before I went home, there was we were getting reporting kind of along the uh, that little like river valley, it was the, the Western Euphrates River Valley. We're getting reporting from like little bits and pieces where, like, older dudes that we know were bad guys were kind of popping up in the area, and but they weren't like operating, they weren't like carrying guns, they weren't trying to recruit, but they're going around and like basically talking trash to like the local like leaders, whether they be the tribal leaders or like a city council member. But they were saying like, you know, hey guys, just go ahead and stand by. Cause like we know once, once they leave, we're coming back in and it's not gonna be pretty. Like they were very, very threatening. Got it. But without the kinetic, you know, like posturing, right? So they weren't carrying guns and like their tactical trucks with the 50 cals. They were just walking around being like, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen, you know, kind of that kind of stuff. And then, um, so we took that and we were kind of seeing other reporting and reflecting that. And a couple of friends and I, we, we started just like looking at it. We were back home now and we wrote a small report, like maybe a two, three page or maybe. And we were just saying like, you know, like, listen guys, like with all things going on, it's like, cause we shut down Ambar pretty well, but I mean, not really, they just kind of moved. Like we were, Ambar was really bad for a long time. Like Fallujah, Ramadi, you know, hit Haditha. These places were getting lit up bad. Mm-hmm. But after, after the, the Sahaba, the awakening, they just basically moved up to like Mosul and Beji and other parts of Iraq. So the, the fight just left. It was still really bad, but it just, it wasn't here anymore because the way we were working. And so we were saying in our analysis, like they're going to come back I and mean, it's going to probably be a lot worse because we're going to be gone. So we were like probably within like 16 to 20 months after we depart our forces from Iraq, it's going to get ugly. We think, and yeah, you know, whatever. Our our mass sergeant reads it. He's like, "Yeah, thanks. Let me file this in the cabinet." <laughs> Shred. Yeah, no interest. And yeah, it's just like whatever, guys. Right? And not good news. And so then, in, yeah. <laughs> so in 2015 or 2014, when ISIS starts rolling through the, you know, going from Azul all the way down, I hit up a few friends of mine. I was just like, "Is this what we said was going to happen?" Because it's like it's about two years after we finally pulled out. So maybe we're a few months off there, I guess. But like, is this what we were talking about? And, you know, a couple guys got on Facebook. They were like, yeah, dude, this is it. And then one guy was like, no, yeah, dude, Aaron, like th- someone wrote this thing even like three years prior. It's just it's like, you know, this is we've all been knowing this and we've been saying it to leadership. But that's just the way it works, man. So that was upsetting. It's like, wow, that's really, you know, we could have done a better job and we just didn't. So what did that, yeah, hard. what did that do to you? So you, you're here you are, like you're an enlisted guy, so you're not making decisions. You're not calling shots, which people don't understand how the military works. Um, then that's what that's how it works. You're not in charge of anything. You're the guy who writes the paper that gets thrown in the shredder. <laughs> but you have time in country, you've got experience, you've got some cultural awareness, and you're writing a articulable threat with a timetable that ends up being true. Uh, you know, how does that sit with you? I mean, do you... At just that sucked. time, it just frustrating. Yeah, it just just sucked. So that was in uh, like 2014, and that was my second full year in um, in DHS, and that's after my my three deployments to Afghanistan. So it's kind of like I've been let down before, you know, and I've been wrong before. I know that how that feels too. But this is one of those things where it's like, you know, it's not like our paper was going to stop this whole thing, mm-hmm. but it's kind of also like, but was this the whole attitude of everyone above us who was? you know, also involved in analysis and like briefing the commander and understanding these things. It's like, ah, it just, it, it just sucked. It's like that, that was a waste of time. 
like after after the end of it, I was like, that was a waste of time. Right. Um, I got to the point where, um, honestly, basically, I would say by my, you know, my middle of my second deployment, I was sitting there thinking like, if this is for, you know, like whatever people say, like this war's about oil, I'm kind of like, yeah, you know what? Fine. Whatever then. Like, does that mean we get the oil? Does it help out our country? I'm okay. I, I can justify that. Mm-hmm. But by the end of it, that's my like eighth year in the Marine Corps. That's when I got out. I was like, I don't believe in this anymore. I don't. I don't hate the Marine Corps, and I don't regret my time in. But it's like, but I don't believe in it anymore. I'm just, I'm just not there. I just, I can't do it. I still wanted to, you know, I still like the idea of serving. I wanted to help out America. I wanted to help out, you know, Americans. So I still had that. But it was just like, maybe this isn't my capacity anymore. But yeah, by the when I when that all when ISIS broke through, it was like that was literally pointless because a lot of dudes died. I've had friends kill themselves. And it's just like, it just sucks, man. It's like, that was, it was rough. Yeah. I, I don't know anybody that's a Marine that hasn't had a friend in the Marine Corps that, or after the Marine Corps that, uh, that took their own life. Uh, yeah. like literally none. I don't think I have any Marine friends who don't have buddies that were real close to them that uh, served up there. And I only have one or two from the air force that I recall that, uh, that made the same choice. Most of them are pretty aggressive, you know, kinetic and kind of on the edge anyway, kind of guys like yeah. knife end types, but um, but that's who you need to win wars. It turns out you need people that are willing to go to the end, right? I mean, like berserkers. That, and then when you bring them to peace, a lot of them don't know what to do, right? I got to I got to tell a story. I'm sure your audience will be okay hearing this. It's a little offensive, but this is this is a good. That's a great intro to this. So in 07, I'm sitting down with. We just got back from a like a three day op on the desert. So we're all tired. We're all just like covered in crap. But like we're we're getting chow really quick, and they have in this little chow hall. They have like a little TV for AFN, the Armed Forces Network. Mm-hmm. And so you can watch like stateside TV shows. But the weird thing is, is like you can't watch commercials because it's a DOD network. So you can't get paid. to. So you'd have to watch like these just the dumbest, like, you know, awareness. Like, you know, like we, we always joke and there was like the you know balance your checkbook commercial and like don't shake your baby. Like these were actual commercials. Right. Right. Well, so one of them, it was from a foundation for, for better life. <laughs> so sorry. I'm reliving it in my head. And um, so we're watching this and it's just, you know, we just, we just got back. So everyone's just kind of like zoned out. We're just, we're done. And um, the commercial that we're watching is, it's like a high school dance. It's like a, a prom and they're, or a homecoming and they're handing out like the court and they're like, okay, and now for your homecoming king, like, you know, whatever his name is. And they're like, all right. And for the homecoming queen, and you might have to edit this thing out, by the way, um, they like <laughs> unveil the girl who won it and it's a girl with Down syndrome. Right. Because, again, it's the foundation for a better life. It's teaching people how to be, you know, good human beings. Right. Okay. So this grunt, he's like 19 years old. He's watching it. And he starts laughing his ass off. Like he, he, he is spilling his food, just like laughing his ass off. And I'm telling my friend, my family this back home. And they're like, Aaron, that's that's insensitive. That's so whatever. And I'm like, that's the guy you want, though. They're doing yes. that kind of job. You need a dude who's like that. Like that's what you. Those are grunts. Those are the guys you want. Yeah. There's um, a reason why we so call yeah, them crayon just, eaters, right? I mean, there's a reason why window licker, <laughs> crayon eater, knuckle dragger, mouth breather are like sort of compliments right. when you're around people that are fighting wars, because you want those guys. Because when you tell them to do something stupid, dangerous, and needs to be done, then they jump in to do it. And I know a lot of people like that. I love people like that too. They're my favorite kind of people. Yeah. Uh, but you can't take them to like nice places. It's why we can't have nice things, right? <laughs> You just have to remind them, look, dude, like, you know, stop gnawing on all the things that are wood in, in the room. I know that you're sharpening your teeth or whatever it is you do, but like, come on, buddy. Um, and we all know that guy. Like, so I always tell people I had a 19 year old roommate who ended up being like a, a legitimate war hero. And, um, 
And he was a complete bonehead. I mean, he looked like an alien. His head was enormous. His shoulders were small. His body was stretched. He was in that awkward, like, 19, you know, 18, 19-year-old phase before he grew into his space. And he ended up being awarded a Bronze Star for, like, saving six guys and dragging him out of a Humvee because he was fearless. But he was retarded, too. I mean, he was just a moron. Um, and he was like, hey, I'm going to buy this uh, Ford Mustang. And it's like, no, you shouldn't do that. He's like, how's 14% interest? And I was like, that's terrible. Oh, my gosh. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. Why would you do that? And he was like, well, I can afford the payments. And then he bought it. And it's like can you afford insurance? And he's looking at me like, insurance? What's that? It's like, I know you're a moron because you made bad decisions with your money. I know you make $800 a paycheck. It's all going to this stupid car payment. And then the next thing he did, as soon as he got through the next school, he got a little bit of a bonus. I think his enlistment bonus paid out. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm getting this motorcycle. I'm getting a Buell Blast. And I'm like, you know what I call that? And he was like, what? I was like, that's a murder cycle. You're going to kill yourself on that thing. You can't die on that, buddy. Like, you can't do it. Like, get rid of the bike. Kept them both, survived like so many, you know, God's fortunate creatures do. And then he went on to do really great yeah. things, but just terrible decision-making, you know, just foolishness. I also remember him getting pulled out of a boat. We pulled him into the boat actually after a dive mission and everybody uh, near us had been like telling people to watch out for the jellyfish, which you don't need a symbol for that, by the way. If there's jellyfish in the water and you haven't worked it out, you look at your dive partner, you get this thing where you're like, there's your eyes. And then you're like, it's yeah, up there. Get out. No, you just show them what the the jellyfish, that's the jellyfish symbol. It's just your hand making a jellyfish. And so we didn't work it out, but we all got the jellyfish out of the way, except this poor guy. I don't want to name him because he's like a grown man now with children, I'm sure. (laughs) And, uh, and he came up and he had like a jellyfish that had just like gone across his whole face, you know, and he was wrecked and his face was all just like pus and, you know, stung and it looked awful. And then because he's 19 and some of us were in our, you know, late twenties or one or two guys in the early 30s. We're all students like at the dive school there. And we're like, dude, now we have to pee on your face. And he's looking around and the instructors, you know, they're just like, yep, that's what they're gonna have to do. They're gonna have to pee on your face. Hey, sorry, best way it is. Yeah, you just have to get pee on your face because, uh, you know, which is, and, and like half the guys there are paramedics. So that's the other thing. So everyone knows this is not a, like a really good treatment for, for getting stung. But uh, he's looking around like panicky, you know, no one peed on the kids. So that was the good news. Um, but I wouldn't put that past that's any fair. combat unit. Like peeing on somebody's face for a jellyfish is like a hundred percent, and that's totally in there was Yeah, there was one dude who uh, I met him, and it, you know, because when you're with that level, like everyone knows everything about each other, like yeah. it's the tightest family ever. And so once you're bled in, it's like they'll love you the same way. And then they were like walking me around because I was an intel guy, so they were like, you know, all right, cool, you're gonna be in this vehicle, help us out, like with the tactical questioning and yada yada. And like, here's the team you're with. Here's you know, like Higgins and Jenkins and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, guys, cool, like you know, whatever. And then the one dude was like, hey, do you want to see this guy throw up real quick? And I was like, what? They were like, yeah, watch this. He's like, yeah, do you watch this? Say that again slowly. Hold on. Do, yeah. you want to, do you want to see this guy do what? Throw up. <laughs> like he can throw up on command. And the way he threw up on command is you kicked him in the shins really, really hard. And so he's like, yeah, watch this. And this dude just like brusely, bah, chopping on a tree. And he just flattens the guy. He just goes, <laughs> and starts throwing up everywhere. He's like, see, see? And I'm like how did I just walk into you? What do you guys, we're about to do the operation, like the, the op order. Like we, we gotta, you know, come on guys, like get ready. No, that is, that like, is yeah, the it's, prep. It's family. That is family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very dysfunctional. Um, not to pivot away from that too quickly, but, um, let's, let's dig into some of the, so military is one animal, obviously contracting is a different world altogether. You got into doing contracting and you end up going to Afghanistan like three times. And what I want people to understand is like how much, on the ground time you got compared to some of the people maybe in the Department of State and some of the intel people that were domestic that were looking at charts and trying to figure it out. Like you got to go 
eat the dust with the guys in the in the grunts. You got to go and do a contracting gig overseas. And tell me what that was like, what the difference was, kind of the, the type of personalities you dealt with that were different and maybe the entities you dealt with over there. Yeah, so I, I left the like the idea of being like an all-source intelligence analyst and it went into a job that was it was a, a biometrics and forensics analyst. So our job was to basically operate biometric systems, but also the information, make sure that we were like properly utilizing it, storing it. If we had to identify bad guys, that's how that was our job, right? What and is the biometrics? Just tell people what those are, like what specific things you were collecting. So the, yeah, the big ones were fingerprints, facial pictures, and iris scans. And those were the major ones. We could do DNA, but it's like it was rare because it just we didn't have the, the equipment to collect everything. So if a dude was like a known like he built bombs and IEDs, we would get his DNA because it's like, yeah, we might see stuff on there. But if it was your average Taliban fighter, it's like, no, we would just print them, fish photograph, iris scan. And that was to understand like where the guys at in the battle space. So if the grunts are ever out there, they have like, you know, mobile readers where they can, hey, that guy looks shady. Who is he? They could scan them. And if we did our job, we uploaded it to machines and servers, they would know like, oh, yeah, this dude got detained like five months ago. This is a bad guy. That, so those kind of jobs. It was the dominant population. Was that um, was that available we, in Iraq at all? It was. Um, we didn't like, was use the, it the depth of way. it. It's, it's, well, it's there's two ways you can utilize biometrics in the in a war type setting like that. Um, one is for force protection. Make sure these dudes don't come on your base. Like identify who these guys are. Identify who the council members are. Like it, it really dominate the identity. And the second one is more of, well, we, we would brief the commander is we will tell you who's killing your Marines. So you can build your networks. You can understand the human terrain better for like a counterinsurgency, which is very important. So there's two kind of ways you can do that. Then you can get creative. Like we were assisting interrogations. We could do um, just you know, if if you go if you have the we know all approach, it's like we will let you know all about this guy. So we could use it, and leverage it, and have fun with it. Um, but yeah, so that actually I was excited too because I just got out of the Marine Corps. It's March 2010, and I, I just started my job, and I was in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, at the National Ground Intelligence Center or NGIC. And you know they say right away like, well, you're deploying. You're a new guy. You're on the contract. This is the way it works. You're deploying right away. I was like, yeah, cool. I'm going to Afghanistan. You know, I want to get out of Iraq. And they were like, yeah, you're going to Afghanistan. I was like, all right, sweet. <laughs> and I was like, and I you, was like, I'm going to go to the mountains. I'll be. Were you married? Under trees. I, I was married. Yeah, I was married. to two kids at the time. Two kids. Um, yeah, and I still do. Obviously, I still have two kids. <laughs> yeah, understood. Uh, you don't get I, rid of them. It turns out. <laughs> they stick yeah, around. But I was like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'm excited. I'll be out of, you know, Marine Corps territory. I'll be now in the army. And I want to learn about this stuff. Yep. And so then my program manager with the contract finds out I was in the Marine Corps. He's like, oh. We'll send you to Helmand Province in the desert with the Marines. I was like, <laughs> can't get out of me, you know? So I deploy. I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I I got to Virginia in like uh, mid-February 2010, and I was gone by like mid-March. So I got out there right away. Um, and this was just at the beginning of uh, what's called Atmashtarik. And that was the clearing of Helmand Province. So it started in Amarja, and it goes out to like Garmsir and other parts of Afghanistan. So by the way, Helmand Province, just think about Afghanistan, looks like this, bottom left. Okay, Big hold on. Desert. Describe it for people that are listening too. So what is the shape? Um, yes. Or give it a rectangle. So, it doesn't make a difference. So a rectangle, uh, you know, describe the rectangle. It's like a kidney bean kind of turned like this with a little stick hanging out of its side. And we're way, way down here in the bottom. Um, and the rest of it, it's the Hindu Kush. Uh, it's a very, very mountainous, very, you know, right. whatever, very humid in a lot of areas. But we're in the Southwest Desert. Um, and this place is weird too. It was never what, to what's on the borders. Population. Just, just for awareness, what are the uh, borders that are on the, uh, 
So the, to the south was Iran, and to the west was uh, I always forget this one. Is it? So one more one more province was Herat, um, and then it was I think it was uh, Tajikistan. It's one of the stands, though, you know, for sure. Yeah, it's one of the stands. <laughs> my but, buddy's um, always over there. And the, the, whenever he explains it, I'm always like, mm, I don't know. Not my part of the world. But so the crazy part, though, again, is like there's only a very, very small river that runs through there. Okay. And then they, the State Department in the 1950s, they went there and they built this big canal system to help out, right? And so this creates the town of Marja. And it's cool because like, well, there you go. You can make more crops, more farms, more people. It's good, right? Democracy. But it also made the fighting terrain now a nightmare because these canals were like just big enough to where you could jump over and roll your ankle, but not big enough to dedicate a bunch of like small land bridges. So all these all these Marines, all the grunts who are going through clearing this area, they're jumping over canal after canal after canal. And it's very, very flat. So inside the you know, inside the canal, you can get some cover real quick, but the minute you get up and get over, it's like high, very high profile. And it's just like it's it was a very difficult operation, obviously. Plus, this part of Afghanistan is kind of like Taliban headquarters, pretty much like Kandahar, which is just to the east through like Helmand province. It was just the heartbeat of, you know, that part of uh, the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And um, so we were there and I was helping out also the the British forces, which they had what's called Op Herrick. It's the same thing. It's just a different unit, different country. So they had different operation names. But again, we were there to tell them who's killing their their forces and to help out any of like the scientists doing their science stuff. So that's what we did. What and was the science stuff? <laughs> now I got to know. What, yeah. what were the scientists doing the science stuff? You got to be specific for me. Well, yeah. So they would um, like we'd you know they, they would grunts to go out, collect some IEDs, uh, the, the the bomb techs or the EOD guys. They would take out the explosives. Then we'd go. Well, we'd want to know like who made this thing, right? Got so it. this is like forensic type science then. Yeah, this is like CSI stuff. So Got they would it. take off the tape, they would you know do it all, and they can get the fingerprints off the tape. They can maybe get some hair. They can maybe get some other parts of DNA. Um, and these guys were good too. They would understand like, hey, is that the? This is built the same way as that one over there. I remember that guy? Where was this bomb found at? Where was that one found at? And we would just map it out and we'd start learning like, okay, who's air operations of this? And it was our job to make that you know and make an assessment out of it. So at one point in time. We came across like this one dude, his fingerprint kept popping up and it was on like hundreds of devices. And so at first people were like, oh, this must be some like major key player or whatever, whatever. And then we looked at where they were actually collecting the fingerprints and it was like the final product. We we're like, no, this guy's actually like very low level. He's like the last guy. He's just putting the tape on and digging, you know, he's burying it. This is a, a, he's burying the bomb. You don't, that's not a high level guy. You don't bury a bomb. Right. It'd be important. <laughs> that's the expendable guy. So, um, yeah, so things like that. And then we also had um, – this guy was really good. He did like ballistics and all kinds of crazy stuff with more technical collection of of actual like, you know, like obviously like guns with uh, other enemy equipment, which we shouldn't talk about in this thing. But he was really, really good. And um, there was one point in time – if you want to talk about bureaucracy really quick. So there was a sniper somewhere. I think it was in Marja. And it took out two or three guys of like one company of Marines. So it's like, okay, we got a sniper on our hands. So um, I went and talked to this guy because he was really smart at forensics. And it turns out he was used to be a sniper. So he was saying like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk about like counter sniper operations, but he's like, but if we get that gun, I can tell you like, you know, obviously how many Marines were killed by this guy and we can figure that out, but we have to get the bullet too. So I went and talked to the morgue on, on our base and I was, it's, it's, this is not a good conversation to have because you're talking about a dead Marine. Yep. Uh, may, or maybe just a casualty. 
where he just got wounded. But I asked them, like, could you guys, when you guys examine the body, like, can you please retrieve the bullet? Because we're, I explained to them, like, we're going to try to test this thing and we can find the, the weapon. We can know he's doing this to the people. We can help the commander kill bad guys. And, you know, the doctor was like, I'd love to, but I can't. Like, I got to send, send the body back home in a certain way. We can't remove whatever too much. I was like, all right, fine. And so then I was like, well, where's the body go? I want to know where the bodies go. We'll call there. So they went to uh, Dover, Delaware, or Dover, yeah, Delaware. And so I'm up all night trying to get a hold of these people. And I'm like, it's not easy finding phone numbers, right? So I'm like going through all these things online, trying to find it. I finally get it. Stay up all night. Um, I get this major on the on the on the phone. I'm explaining what's going on. We're talking about it, and he was saying like, oh, well, we'll we can do that, but it's like you know we want to study it too. We want to make sure that we can like you know really examine the cause of death. And I was like sir, like the guy got shot by a bullet, you know what the cause of death is. Like, and I explained it again, like if you give us the bullet, we can find the guys that are doing this. Yeah, forget cause of death, we'll find the responsible party. Yeah, and then they were like, oh yeah, but we can also do like, you know, he was saying like basically like study the bullet and tell us like the material you used. And it's like, it's it's Central Asia. It's like, there's bullets everywhere. It's like, you're not going to stop this, but like we can find the guy. And the answer was no. So it's like, I'm already seeing again, like, wow, it's just like people aren't really in it for the whole thing of like trying to be, you know, the best they can for the the lowest, lowest level of the warfighter. And so that sucked seeing that. That was in 2010. And it's just like, we're trying to help out, you know, Marines be Marines. We're trying to make them more lethal, trying to get them smarter about killing bad guys. And it's like, there's just roadblock after roadblock. And another part of that war that I found very different was I heard, I didn't hear as much in Iraq. I heard so many people say, that's not my job. And that was weird to me because it was the radio guy. It was the IT guys. It would be the cook, the cook in the chow hall. It'd be just this collection. But the further away you got from like the bigger bases, the more down you got to the lower units, that, that doesn't exist because everyone's got to do a job. And so I enjoyed doing that because I'd go out to like, you know, small, really bad areas, small places. And it sucked going out there because there's no like good amenities. You're washing your clothes in a bucket. Like I... <laughs> Because I went out there not knowing what I was going to see. And I'm wearing like, you know, button up shirts, um, chino <laughs> pants, you know. Nice. And I'm wearing, I'm wearing, Mer- I'm wearing Merrill's. I'm wearing, you know, good, good footwork and everything. But it's like, I'm out there looking professional, right? Right. And I'm sleeping in holes, like at least once every few days, like holes in the ground. And it's just like, what am I doing? But it's like, you know, whatever. It's, it's here for the job, right? Right. And um, and they they didn't care. They would see me get off the, like the, the Hilo land and they would see this guy walking off dressed like me. And they were like, who the hell is this guy? But by like the second day there, they were like, you know, thanks for everything, you know, give us this information let us know what you can, you know, ever. And I would hit them up before I'd go there and talk to the Intel guys and be like, I know you guys are low on like printer paper or like toner. I know you guys are low on stuff. I'm at headquarters. I will bring stuff out to you. So they were always cool because it was like, you know, like small little drug deals like that. It would always give you like great rapport with people. You're doing and, air um, quotes on the drug deals part of it. But that's yeah, that's how things get done. You've, you're finessing <laughs> because you have access to transportation and, and they don't have access to things. So you're you're making uh, connections like that. Yeah, we, we call them drug deals in the Bureau, too, all the time when we're doing things like that. Yeah. It's like, oh, you have this thing. I need this I, thing. Can we make this drug deal happen? It's such a terrible it's such a terrible euphemism, <laughs> but it's so useful. But I mean, they'd be like a lot of times they'd be like, "Dude, bring some rippets. We're low," or like, "Bring some rippets are like a really cheap uh, energy drink." <laughs> you know them. Um, I know. But they were like, "Dude, we're getting low in like marbles. Bring them out." And I was like, "I'll get, you know, I'll get what I can." So it's like things like that. But it also tells them too. It's like we are here for you guys, and obviously I can't be here with you always. But it's like 
we're here to support you guys. Like, and that means a lot for dudes because they're down there in it, and it's, it sucks being down there. And they're there for like six, seven months at a time. So, you know, give them support. They do their job better. And you know, Afghanistan was weird like that. I don't know how many times those guys would ask for something, and you'd hear like, you know, it's not our job up here. Sorry. So, it's so that bizarre. I, I mean, there's a lot of that in the FBI as well. I experienced that. So that's government wide. I think. I think that's. Um, yeah. That might be a generational thing too. But it's nice that you had the experience of being the guy who needed the something in the field, who was in a forward operating base somewhere and not had access to it, and then knowing to to even ask. I think that sets you apart from the guy who came straight out of college, got a good job, you know, was a intel guy from some sort of like degree program and didn't go through and, and yeah. heard it the same way i mean it's a different animal right we're just talking about different types it of is. people and uh, and those right. are the not my job types uh, no it's not my job to bring cigarettes out there when you know like somebody out there is jones and for some cigarettes and life's going to be a lot better if you bring it it doesn't cost you very much out of your paycheck and especially especially if they're stateside camels big gold that's the gold <laughs> you get anything you need You'll get the nicest hole oh, yeah. to sleep in. Um, I, I, I wanted to bring all this stuff up because I wanted to set the, the stage for your ground level intelligence, I think, as well as your analytical capabilities. And when people listen to you talk, they're going to know that you're one. I think they can tell that you're being an honest uh, deliverer of this information because uh, I, I found that to be the case. But moreover, um, that you have a that you're interested in the mission set, that your mind works in a certain ways. And, and some people are analytical types and some people are not. I'm not really an analyst type. I'm more of an action type guy, but I do tend to see the bigger picture. But I love having analysts that are really passionate about their their craft, their trade, to bring stuff to it. And, and in the Bureau, unfortunately, we get a lot of people that go like, well, I don't do tactical intelligence. And it's like, well, I'm doing investigation, so I need tactical intelligence. Yeah. That's what I require. So you're useless to me. Don't ask me for anything either. That my, It's not my job experience. It's very FBI. Um, and probably very much like a lot of the intelligence community when it comes to doing really tactical type operations. People want to do the high level stuff. They want to do the operational or the strategic. So uh, I, I wasn't even familiar with the strategic term. So I appreciate you bringing that into my lexicon. There's a lot of strategic thinkers. They have no idea how to do tactical operations, which is where things get yeah. done, right? That's what brings in the intel that allows them to do that sort of like processing. Um, all that's to say, you had a pretty good understanding of what was going on in theater, in two different theaters in war zones. And you'd seen obviously failures and, and typical government bureaucracy failures, which are the nature of the beast, right? They're just, uh, they're, they're an operational risk that you deal with if you deal with the government. Mm -hmm. um, I want to fast forward a little ways. You've been working for DHS. Tell people kind of in like a very, you know, quick little um, couple of hits, bullet points of how you ended up where you were in 2021 when we saw the Afghan withdrawal. Yeah. Um, and so, by the way, that was 2010. In 2011, I went back to Afghanistan, supporting special forces. Went there again under this time DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, in 2012, supporting special forces again. So that's why I got into that little community. Yep. And then I went to go work for DHS. I was at CBP for about a year and a half-ish. And I was like, oh, wow, we're letting in a lot of bad guys. And CBP well, is Customs Border Patrol. Right. Am I uh, saying Customs, that right? Customs Border Protection. Protection. I know I um, get that wrong. Yeah. So Border Patrol is BP and CBP is another animal. So people may not know that, but it is. They're two different entities yeah. under DHS. Yeah. So, um, and I was just like, okay, well, if they're if they're getting in because they can't legally, well, how are these guys getting in the first place then? It's like, okay, well, probably USCIS. So I went to go work for USCIS, Citizenship and Immigration Services, and I was there for about eight and a half years. And then in 2021, 20, in, uh, in August... 
you know, I'm working, whatever, and a buddy hits me up on Signal. And he's like, he just says like, hey, bro, I'm going to pull you into a conversation. I haven't talked to this guy in, you know, probably like nine months. And this is, is like, you, you mentioned very, very quickly, but you said you got pulled into the Special Forces community. You you have contacts that are Green Berets because of the work you did in Afghanistan as an Intel guy, as a contractor. Is that correct? Yeah, Right, right. And okay. so um, I just wanted to you know, hammer that home because because that you yeah. you ran over that really fast, but I think that's going to be an important connection here. Not knowing the whole story, <laughs> sorry, but um, yeah. So he hits me up and he just says like, "Hey, dude, I'm going to pull you into a group chat on Signal," and that was it. And it's like, bro, I haven't talked to you. Like, what, what's up? And then all of a sudden, like, you know, I get this invite, so I pop in there, and it says um, the the group like the channel name, the group chat name uh, says uh, like Neo, you know, Land Two or something like that. Neo means non-combatant evacuation operation. So this means getting dudes who are not part of the fight, women and children not part of the fight, and getting them the hell out of somewhere bad. That's a Neo, and that's a, that's a DOD mission. It turns out, by the way, State Department actually ran that. So a whole other thing there. And so someone, he tagged me in a comment where he kind of replied to it, tagged my name in there. And this comment was just asking, like, you know, hey, how does, like, you know, this immigration thing work? I was like, oh, that's why he pulled me in. All right, cool. And I was like, I typed, I typed the answer. I'm like, oh, you may do this. You file this form. Send, whatever. So I went back to the the individual chat. I'm like, bro, what is this thing? And he says, like, you know, we're getting everyone out of there. We're getting all our all of our sources, all of our old Terps, all of our all of our friends, basically, all of the, the people we worked with in Afghanistan, the actual Afghans, we're getting them out of right now because it's going down. And so this was in, um, it was, it was after the middle of August. It was somewhere in like the, 16th, 17th, 18th of August. And our pullout date was what, was, the 30th or the 31st was kind of the hard, hard stop date. Was that right? Yeah. So, it, well, it was supposed to be May 1st and right. then Joe Biden extended that. And then the day after he extended that, the Taliban said, no, we're not doing that. And so the day after May 1st, the Taliban started rolling through Afghanistan. And um, on May 14th, sorry, August 14th, Biden sends the additional troops to Kabul because now it's like it's looking really bad. They have gone through so fast. And so the airport got really, really bad. And so um, I'm going to have to do a little bit of a Tarantino type story here because. Yeah, well, for, first of all, just remind people about what that looked like. So we had basic full control of the theater. We had um, minimal um, friendly casualties of any kind. Like they were we, we were taking like injuries on a monthly basis occasionally, but not we weren't having KIAs. Um, well, was, that was so th that was the agreement with the Taliban. It was in brevity. It was this: you, hey America, you guys leave by a certain date. Okay, cool. You don't hey, Taliban. You don't touch us. We won't kill you guys. Deal, deal, fine. And the other part was we'll do this in a stage process. Okay, we're not going to go all at once. And America, you can't be involved with like the domestic stuff going on. You can't be involved in you know the Afghan government's got to be Afghan government. You guys, American government, and. Those are two different things. And it's not like the Taliban were that honorable. They made mis they didn't, you know, honor the entire thing also. But in brevity, they did. They didn't attack us. We weren't hitting them. We said we'd leave by a certain date, and we did not. And we actually knew this back in 2020. Um, there, there was I mean, total, total deep state guys talking to the Washington Post, and they were saying, like, no, we're not leaving. We're keeping in assets. We're keeping in air assets. You can watch. You can read this thing. It was on uh, November 27th, 2020. It's in the Washington Post article talking about, no, nah, no, nah, we're we're leaving, but you know, we're not, right? And so that signaled to the world, like, what's really going on, right? So, um, yeah, so May 1st, uh, Taliban start rolling through Afghanistan. And it's not like it's uh, this unified 
ground elements going province to province. No, they were all just in the same area. Like these are just farmers that are like, okay, yeah, well, Taliban's going to win, so I'm going to join Taliban. So they just rise up quickly. Um, Taliban's got their forces. They had around probably like eighty to one hundred ten thousand. But these are dudes that want to win. This is this is what they're fighting for. They believe in it. And this is their home. And yeah, it's their home. And they're not going anywhere. That's that's one key thing, by the way. So this was a cultural thing that we didn't learn for a while. So in a lot of Afghanistan, whether it be like Pashtuns down in like south and the east, or um, I forgot the, the tribe names or the ethnicities, the, the whole country of Afghanistan, though, it was not considered honorable to like join the army and leave your territory. Because they would say like, okay, you're leaving your land to go defend somewhere else. Why, why would you do that? Right. Like you, you live here. Why would you go to that mountain over there and, or, or that mountain chain or that part of the whatever? Why would you leave to go defend somewhere else? It makes no sense to us. So they were not looked at as, as a very um, noble or honorable thing. The police, a little bit different because it's like, well, at least you're in your same city. At least you're in your same territory. It's like we can respect that a little more. But no, the, the soldiers were not high, like the top of the notch. Um, and they've always been that way. This is not a new development. We've known that for a long time. I've yeah, seen like, them. It's got to be. I mean, we've been there 20 years. So 11, 12. Yeah. And so it's just like, that's that's the way it is, guys. You're not getting the best, right? And this is partially why they're falling. And it's not to say, by the way, there's not, there's awesome Afghan soldiers. I got to do the thing. They're very honorable. A lot of, you know, great dudes that can fight very well. And they were not the majority at all. So that's even worse for them because now it's like they're getting relied upon heavily by the government. And it's, like you look at it like, you know, we have this big fighting force and it's like, man, it's really more like this and they can't be everywhere at once. So they're falling like crazy. Afghanistan's going down. Um, Kandahar goes down. And the only reason why there wasn't a bigger battle there is because they got the soldiers the hell out of there because they were like, they're going to lose. So they negotiate the Taliban, fly the dudes out, no fighting. But it's like, you got to leave now, though. And this keeps going down closer and closer and closer to gets to Kabul. And Kabul is a city of 5 million people, right? So it's a big city. Mm-hmm. And the way the mountains are around it, it's kind of weird. So it's like once you're in there, it's kind of like a couple roads in, a couple roads out. It's almost like, like Las Vegas. And it, the infrastructure is not great. So it's like, you know, you're kind of there. It's, it's not easy to get out of these things. And so um, by – they hit the outskirts oh, – sorry, well, I think it was the 13th, maybe a little before that. Um, actually, I got it written down right here. One second. So on the, uh, July 14th, Kandahar fell. Uh, J- July 23rd, that's the infamous phone call between Biden and uh, Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan. That's where Biden says, like, you just need to go out there and have a press conference. You're going to turn the whole, you know, do a little head fake, right? That's that's what we need is a press conference to make people think you're winning. And even Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, who sucks, even he's like, no, I, we need, like, these assets. You're wrong on our numbers. You're wrong on their numbers. Like, he's actually schooling Biden on this thing. And it's just like, that was the phone call. That was it. So um, on August 14th, Biden sends 3,000 more troops to Kabul. And on the 15th, um, Taliban actually got to the outskirts of Kabul. So this is August 15th. They hit the outskirts, and they just emptied what's called the, uh, the Parwan Detention Facility. So this was at Bagram. Bagram, which we closed down, middle of the night. That thing is about a 24-minute helo right away. It is very, very close. Like, if you look it up on Google Earth, like, and you just flatten the Earth, you can you can see it across the mountain right there. It's like, no, no, it's right there, guys. This was a very, very close thing. Huge airstrip, a lot of resources. It was hard to penetrate, so this could have been a great place to stage everybody, but we didn't have access anymore. 
And that, and and that was this, essentially like one of the major tactical failures that people always kind of point major. to. It's like we had an incredible infrastructure. It wasn't in a densely populated urban area. We had the landing strip. It could handle every single one of our types of planes that we needed to put yep. down. We had full control over the area and everybody knew it. And we had, uh, and then we had detention facilities there as needed. And we had all the resources that if you had to school it back up, it wouldn't have been hard to spin that thing up into like functionality really fast. But it was exactly. a military base and, as um, opposed to like a, like a civilian uh, air, you know, airstrip. Us, yeah, I was at I was at Bagram twice. Like I lived there for you know almost almost a year in total, probably. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. So the the part one detention facility it was huge. Had like uh, I mean, it had probably at least a couple hundred, but it could hold up to like five thousand guys. Like this thing was massive. A lot of a lot of cells. Well, Taliban get there. No one's really guarding it. Click click unlock. And these are not just like you know some dude throwing rocks at a, at a convoy these, these are like isis guys because there is isis in, uh, in afghanistan these are taliban guys like the real bad fighters they had haqqani network dudes these are very bad violent guys who want to win well they just start going straight to kabul to kabul which is right across the, the mountains right so they get there on the 15th and this is the important thing to understand too so you know ashraf ghani who's the president and joe biden who's the president you know they're on the very top of the information pipe so it's not like they just know all. Like they're getting fed information the whole way up. Well, if you're plugged into that, you see what's going on too. That includes the Afghan side. And the Afghan side, there's this thing called the NDS, the National Director of Security. It's kind of like a DOJ DHS thing. They have a, a state security, there's it's intelligence, it's you know, it's it's like kind of that whole thing. So these they also guard infrastructure and key infrastructure and things like airports. So they're plugged into. Say the their pipe. name again. They they're called D DNS. NDS. NDS. The National NDS. Director of Security. National yeah. Director of Security. And, okay. And again, like they know what's up, and plus they have cell phones. Like they know what's going on in their own country, in their own city. So, as these people are watching Afghanistan fall like that, like they started staging their families nearby. They're calling their families, like, "Get here now, because we're gonna be we're gonna be leaving here soon." And you're not getting out of Afghanistan by driving. There's no infrastructure for that. Um, and plus you have to get into other countries. Well, Pakistan won't just let you in. Iran just won't let you in. Uzbekistan won't just let you in. It's like, no, they want to get, absolutely not guys. So once they hit Kabul, these dudes that were guarding the gates, they ditched their gear. They ditched their, like their uniforms. They put on their Afghan clothing. They got their families. And these were the first guys that got the hell out of there. And then all of a sudden you have this airport with no security. There's yeah, there's big walls in between. And those big walls have these things called gates. And those gates are missing these things called gate guards. And so the city of frightened 5 million people descend on the airport. And they see no one's guarding it. And they, they bum rush it. So this is, this is the images you're seeing now of, of Afghans running on the tarmac, of you know hanging out in the wing and trying to get in the wheels and just completely like the whole World War Z look, right? Have you, have you ever heard anyone happened. articulate that being the actual failure? Because when you first told me this, I was like, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about that this director of national security was the fail point. Like that's the single point of people bailed out and left the gate unlocked. That like that was- No, that's I've it. not heard that. And so I learned this from Afghans that were actually there. Because again, so once I got pulled into this signal group chat and effort, like I started making you know connections and a couple of friends again, and I was getting pulled into food these channels. And then one of them, there were a couple of the Afghans that were actually out there. And these were like these dudes worked for SEALs for a few years. These guys actually had like you know XF, XFS guys, special forces guys, who came back in and like you know they're trying to do things. And so we saw what was going on. We saw how State Department was turning plans around by the end. 
they were shutting down, you know, like flights and stuff of Americans on there. And so they were setting up back channels to get their get Americans and get their friends out of Afghanistan after the fall. Who's they? And so they were this group of private individuals who again these were uh, Afghans and these most of these guys were actually naturalized Americans. Okay. But um these were Afghans that supported like Americans in the war. And again, these are these are good dudes. Like they're they're credible, they're they're good guys. Sure. And they're operating with ex special forces guys. So it's like this was a good community. Um this is what this was not Pineapple Express, if people are wondering. Um, so, and I wasn't in Afghanistan when this was going on, but there's, on, but there digitally. were multiple, um, channels of people trying to solve yeah. the same problems because the SF community is obviously capable and, and fairly loyal to people that save lives and enabled operations. So, um, you're one of many nodes in this sort of like pipeline of people trying to save the right people. If we were to put that in air quotes, yeah. who actually, uh, were involved in the American war effort that we have essentially abandoned because of this type of operation. Right. And, and also the other thing about the, that community is they take the initiative. They, they do, they make decisions quick. Like these are the guys who are like, no, we're doing this now. Yep. And it's just like, yep, what you need. So they were setting up like a communication center, um, in a city that was like about, I think eight hours away from me. And they were like, you know, can anybody else come here and help out? And I was like, yeah, I can drive tonight and I'll see you guys in like eight hours. And they were like, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I can tell you about CIS. I can tell you about how this thing works. Maybe I can try to get a, get like a drug deal, but like, I'm saying, like, do you guys need table set up? I'll move the boxes. Is, is the TV straight? Like, just let me do things that'll give you guys more time. Then they were like, yeah, bro, come out. So when I out there, helped them out, and I'm meeting these Afghans. And are you and on leave at that dudes. point? Uh, yeah, I took, I took sick leave for it. Um, and it was actually on my, because uh, this was over the weekend of August 31st. I actually turned uh, 39 while driving out there because, you know, it's like, I want to help out. This is this got to be done right now. Yeah. So I get did. out there. And these people are great. They're nice. Um, but I was asking them, like, guys, what the hell happened? Like, you know, you have friends back there, right? And, like, they were like, yeah. I'm like, what What happened? They were explaining to me, like, oh, yeah, it's because the gate guards all left. And there was a ton of them. Like, these dudes all all ditched the thing, though. And this is first-hand access. And so I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. It's, it's really that? And they were like, yeah, straight up. And by the way, the first, like, I think four, five, or six planes, like, no one knows who the hell got on there. And that, that was a, it was a really, really bad thing. But, um, who do we think they were yes. just speculating at this point? Obviously some of them had to be these yes. gate guards, right? Yeah. Mostly, I would say mostly inside, uh, ba ba mostly Afghan officials, government officials. And the problem is those dudes are insanely corrupt. Now here's where it gets hard, by the way, again, it's gonna be a little bit of a Tarantino story. So to be in the Afghan NDS and to be in anything in the Afghan national security forces, you have to give your biometrics to the U.S. government. So you have to give your fingerprints, you take a facial photograph, maybe an iris scan, we get your name, we get your date of birth, we get your like ID number. Like you exist inside of our system. So after this all went down, and after I find out about this, I go back to work and I'm like, hey, can we like just kind of go through the first like 10 plane loads? And if any of these guys matched up to NDS records, like can we, can we kick them out of the country? Because like the reason why is because it got so bad and Marines had to go reestablish a security perimeter on the outside and they had to go do everything because the Afghan NDS did their job. That's what led to 13 or 12 Marines getting killed and a, and a Navy corpsman. If and I'm not saying like, you know, anything could have changed out of that, but it's like, but those guys really didn't have to die. They, they really didn't have to die. They did a job because the Afghan, the Af, that Afghan element ditched it. And th th that's gotta be a problem for somebody. Right. 
So I go to work. I say this. I'm like, can we just go through these records and just like, let's just find the guys that are we know are in the NDS, and at least we can we can question them. At least we can, you know, maybe they'll start spilling beans on each other. We can find the guys responsible for this. Let's just deport them. Can we do that? No. What was the What was the answer? No for was it just no? I don't know. No, no, no like, further no, information. That's no. Yeah, I can't do it. Um, and I went back to him about a week later because I was still talking with these special forces guys. And they, I was like, guys, can you tell me like legit dudes like that you guys can guarantee are a, a still good. They're not like bad guys, but actually helped us out with like major operations or helped us out with like something like we actually want these guys. We have to help them out. They're like, yeah, here's a stack of like, you know, hundred. So I got to work with this. And I'm like, guys, I have their names, their dates of birth. I got their A numbers, their alien numbers. I've got their visa application. Like, can we can we just put them on top of the list? Like, you know, because now we're giving out all these things to dudes that shouldn't deserve it. These are going out to some shady guys are getting these these visa programs. And work was like, no, it's going to come on a first come first serve basis. It's just like, it's just it's, it's the, the dumbest thing. possible way to handle that problem. But it's the simplest yeah. thing that it's because that's our government. Our government's not interested in doing what's right. Um, when you talk about the the twelve service members or the the twelve Marines and the corpsmen, uh, their names are on a plaque that's outside in my parents' front yard. I don't know if I told you this, but um, my had my dad had me put up a a flagpole. They've got a, a twenty foot flagpole that's always lit, and they've got thirteen crosses in their front yard. It's a big chunk of their front yard, and it's all graveled and maintained and groomed. And there's a big like yeah. plaque that's probably probably uh, three feet by foot and a half or two feet. It's got all their photos, their names, their ranks. And uh, where their hometown was, and all that, and and a, and a brief paragraph saying what it was with a never forget uh, written out in stones. Yeah. And people walk by their um, their their house every day on this walking loop. There's all these old timers that walk around, younger families and stuff, strollers, and people stop there every single day. And I think it's really important that nobody forgets what what happened. But I think it's also important that people understand what that failure looked like, and that there are people who are actually responsible for it, not just. The nebulous, like, oh, the administration failed and the president failed. Like, no, there were people on the ground that are now in this country enjoying the blessings of liberty because 13 of our finest went over there and did something that they didn't, they shouldn't have had to do. I think it's really important to remember that, though. And I, just in case of any, any, anybody that's related to, you know, those guys that got killed and and the women too, like family or friends or team members. I'm not, I really am not trying to say that like this was written in the stars. I'm not trying to say that whatever, but I, I think based on what the Biden administration has done in this whole thing, because again, this was a state department operation, not DOD. Like we can really get into this thing. I do think there was chaos no matter what that was, I think predetermined based on all the steps they took, but it's like, I don't want to try to sit there and say like, you know, this would have been yours because X, Y, Z that's, that's chaos theory. That gets, no one knows. Right. It's, right. It's tragedy. So, there's obviously some, terrible decisions that were made, including abandoning Bagram, including, you know, right. Seeing it fall so quickly and not reinforce it either, either with overwhelming force and take advantage of whatever it was they were going to do. Like there, there's, this is step 11 or 12 down the chain and we could have stopped it two or three down and, and realized that there were bad decisions being made and that didn't happen, which, which, you know, at the end of the day, I think this administration should be accountable for all the uh, rounds they sent down range, whether they're good or bad, accurate or otherwise. Just like every administration should take should own what they you know they uh, succeeded and failed at, and this is a clear failure. And you know one of the one of the most awful images of my adult life that I can remember is people falling out of those planes, not because I knew anything about them. Like like we watched uh, people from Afghanistan clinging to wheels, not understanding how landing gear works, knowing that they are going to get thousand, two thousand, three thousand feet in the sky and then fall off to their death. 
which is insane, yeah. which just tells you how, how little they understood about anything that was going on there. I mean, those right. people, like, you don't jump on a plane like that and think you're going to hold onto the wheel. I don't, under no circumstances would that yeah, make but, any sense. But imagine and, what they were fleeing because what they were looking down the barrel of, right? Right. And please understand also this then too. So if that's the level, if that's the culture, if that's the, you know, the population, oh yeah, here's democracy. Yeah. Here's some, you know, here's some training on LGBT. It's just like, what the hell, what, what, what are we doing? Like, why are we trying to do this? Right. Do you actually want to hear a great story? I do. I so only want to hear great stories, bud. Um, <laughs> In 2010, we, you know, this there was this uh, human intelligence report. Uh, it's called an IIR, uh, information intelligence or intelligence information report, and it's just like you know, like hey, I talked to a guy, he said this, right? And so we're reading this thing, and this is, you know, I don't even care. This is, this is classified. So it's talking like to an Afghan farmer. It's a local information report, basically, and this farmer is saying like, "Whew, I'm glad you're here, Americans. Hey, we need your help." There is a dragon behind that mountain over there, and that's the reason why we have a drought right now. And you know, this is this sucks for us, right? So, if you guys can launch some some airplanes over that mountain and you can bomb that dragon, that'd be cool because then the drought's gonna be over. And by the way, there's a big like pearl inside this dragon, so then we can like take that big pearl and we can like you know go sell it. That's worth like a lot of money, right? That's good for us, right? And this was an actual intelligence report. I love and that. At the end of it. So the end of it, the, the the collector he writes on the very you know the, the comment at the bottom, saying this is the level of people we are dealing with. It's like so stop sending us complex like requirements of like what's the socioeconomic blah blah blah. It's like no no no. It's like we're not dealing with a population that's highly educated. Like, right. This Do is they have guys. shoes or not? Exactly. <laughs> That'd be a good collection, right? Like what is their ability exactly. to march in cold weather and or rough terrain? Um, so my little experience being on the uh, Afghan camps in Holloman, which were nicer than the ones on Fort Bliss because the Air Force runs things a little bit cleaner and nicer. They had these things they called the Cadillacs, which were um, like multiple multiple uh, toilet heads and uh, multiple showering facilities like built into these little trailers. Yeah. So that's where people went. And I'm <clears throat> I'm actually interviewing a, uh, this kid who was a really nice kid. He was 21, 22 years old, great English. Uh, like an American sense of humor had had dealt with the State Department for a number of years. You know, there's there's all different levels of capabilities. This kid was going to be fine. He was going to go catch eighty thousand yeah. dollars working for you know Meta or Google or something for the novelty of hiring an Afghan parolee who actually was competent at a, a skill set, whatever. I mean, and he was. And so we're talking to him, and he goes, "You know, these people are from my country, but my country is not a country. It's just a bunch of tribes that live in the same place. And and that's what you guys always fail to understand." He's like, I grew up in a city and I am now sharing a bathroom with people who have never seen a toilet and have never seen a plumbed anything, showers or otherwise, and they keep uh, shitting on the floor of the of the showers. And he said, I'm, I'm horribly embarrassed every time I come in because they don't know the difference. And these are the people that we're dealing with. Yeah. And he goes, when you're asking questions to me that are complicated, I understand what you're saying. You're not going to find that when you talk to the others. And, you know, I, I did uh, 12, we did 12, 12 or 13 interviews of guys supposedly who um, allegedly sexually assaulted a, a black female soldier on Fort Bliss, um, which was a, a silly, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a fight and if you've ever been in a fight in the dark, but can you tell me the color of the eyes of anybody you've ever fought? No. Because that's a really interesting piece of information to share. Um, I ended up bringing this as one of my whistleblower disclosures to to my congresswoman, because it was like, look, 
I'm an investigator. I just go on what people say, but I also look at the plausibility of the information that's being collected. And if you're telling me that at 1 a.m. in one of the darkest places I've ever been in my entire life, which is out in the desert in New Mexico or, uh, you know, West Texas, and you got into a fight with 12 men for your life that you believed were going to sexually assault you, and you can tell me what color eyes they had and what they were dressed like, and then you got in your car because you got away from them by kicking them in the shin really hard, and then you drove off. Did anyone ask her if the trunk was still open when she showed up there? It's like the easiest question. to Like, that's the thing I want to know. Was the trunk open if they were trying to fight you and get you while you were back opening up in your in the back of the trunk of your hatchback? Yeah. Was the trunk open when you arrived? Because if not, um, then I have more questions. None of these basic things were asked. And, and that was the level of, of chaos that was happening on the state side of what you're talking about. So the evac was going on insanely over there with no management and gate guards getting you know blown up. And then they got on all yeah. these planes and then they landed and they were like offloaded by the tens of thousands into these parolee camps. Well, yeah. And then um, there's this, there's people crapping in the, in the, in the uh, showers and then there's people making up stories and then like, you know, and, and, and it was insane. Like when we drove up, my buddy and I, he was a, um, a Green Beret. He was my partner. So we drive up there to do some interviews. And he was like, dude, are we in Afghanistan? Like people were just crapping on the side of the road. They literally like walked out of the tents, uh, which they were like temper tents, like the, you know, the kind of high speed air force and army tents. And they would walk out on the roads. They would uh, be praying, kneeling in the middle of the street where like vehicles are like flying by. And then they would walk off like 10 feet and just crap on the side of the road for like a mile or two. It was like a crap row. When you drove in, it smelled just like human (laughs) feces. And you're like, what in the world are we doing? It felt like, I mean, I've got videos of it. They're like, you can't take videos here. And I was like, well, I'm taking a video because this is insane. This is the craziest thing I've ever seen. And I need to document this for our case file. So I like, I don't really care. And I actually had it on my government cell phone. So it was like, but, but wild, like truly was. Yeah. Totally weird. Anyway, that's where they got, that's where they came over here to. So they built a little Afghanistan in the middle of uh, West Texas and in the middle of nowhere in in, uh, New Mexico, which is kind of wild to think about too, uh, right next to White Sands Missile Range. But uh, so, so some of these people that came in, you know, we've got obviously serious security concerns because nobody knows who they were. Um, you had biometrics that had been collected and you know that biometrics were collected for a very long time in Afghanistan for the yep. the conflict and, and more oh, and more. Oh yeah, we, we dominated the population. Like everyone over there was fingerprinted like multiple times. Like if you were fingerprinted it's because you were either too young, a woman, or like you were just a true hillbilly out in the sticks and we never saw you. Like we had everybody basically fingerprinted though. We knew the whole population. So what is our ability to go through the people that we have domestically that we brought in here and identify friend, foe, or unknowns, do you think? Well, so that's that's part of the process. So when they're doing their advanced parole, um, and they would stop, they wouldn't fly from like Kabul to, you know, Dulles, right? They would have to stop along the way. So they would do these at a few different places, like Rota, Spain, Qatar. Uh, I think there were some in Germany. There's yeah, a lot of, you know, just you know, bases we have, right? I know two we of those three are correct. So I know Qatar and I know there was like, I think Ramstein also had a bunch. Yeah, Ramstein. Yep. And so we'd park them there. They'd be there for a little bit. And then we would do like the, you know, initial security screening. And then we would send them on their way and they would get their advanced parole. They'd land and we'd take them to these camps that you were at. And we would, you know, you know, you know, you're hearing all right. All right. So what, what was the, uh, what were, was the was, security screening looking like? If you don't mind getting into just kind of the, so the basic security screen, what is that? So they, uh, we first identify biometrically, so that's going to be your your fingerprints. And if they can't establish that, which is going to be 
very rare. We'll leverage other things, the facial photograph for like a facial recognition, or we'll do maybe iris scans if they have it. But we will though identify like, you know, by fingerprints and this works very, very well. And so we're, you know, loading them in and we're getting guys that have a lot of detainments and a lot of like, Oh, you were actually like a very bad guy. You were, and these things are all identified inside the system. It's very give, technical. So yeah, give me a little more technical like says, than very bad guy though. Do you mind? Like, what does that look like? What is a very no, bad guy? So a very bad guy, let's say, um, while in Afghanistan, uh, us forces or coalition, were trying to find this dude cause they were like, we think this guy's bad enough to go out and do a raid and grab. So he has to go through this thing called the joint prioritize effects list or the JPEL. And to be uh, to get a JPEL number or a target number, you had to have like enough derogatory information. Like, you know, okay, there's like three or two or three like really good human sources that can identify you. Or it's like we've seen like your phone and during some number of things. We can see where you're operating at, but we know you're operating with bad guys based on again, like, you know, sensitive collection of intelligence information. And then you're on this list for a very short time period. If we can't grab you in time, you go off the list. So it's like this thing is, you know, it's a system that's designed to go find bad guys. And if you, and this information is collected and stored inside of your biometric profile. So when you put your fingerprints down, if it says like, you know, JPEL, you know, four, five, eight, seven, six, three, it's like, you write a note right away. Like, oh man, that guy's bad. That dude's a terrorist. That dude's, a, that's a straight up bad guy. You're gonna know right away. Or if they were on what's called the DOD biometric enabled watch list or the Buell, as we would call it. And the Buell has categories of bad guys. So like category one means like detain him on site, you know, tier one, detain him on site. Tier two is like, yo, get this guy in too though. Like bring this guy in as well, actually. <laughs> and if you, if your fingerprints were found on a bomb or a homemade explosive, you were automatically tier two. So that shows you like the level of bad guys, right? Then you have a tier four, and this was designed for like force protection. So you, you don't want these guys coming on your base. So if you were ever detained by U.S. forces or any other coalition force, you were put on the tier four, the watch list. That doesn't matter if you were detained for four days or if you were detained for like, you know, years, you were on this watch list and it was designed to, you know, identify who you are. Uh, tier five, that means like you worked with us, but we fired you because you're shady as hell. Like we went through your phone. There's a lot of bad news inside there. Dude, we caught you taking pictures of the flight line. Why you have classified maps on you? Like we would catch them do counterintelligence, you know, or um, you know, counterintelligence interviews. They'd be assessed like, no, yeah, you, you're losing access. Bam, watch listed. So now he tries to go on base. Oh, he's watch listed. Can't come on. It works, right? Yep. And then tier six, which is more of like, we think they just kind of messed up. So keep an eye on them. And that's like, you know, don't let them know whether we know them. But like, if you come across this guy, like take every note you can. Tell us what he's wearing. Tell us where you're at. What time of the day. What's he, you know. Those kind of things. Got it. So these dudes are rolling through CBP screenings, Customs Border Protection, and you know they're popping up on these duty watch lists. Well, they're also coming off this watch list because NJIC, back stateside, I think operating in concert with DHS, they're taking these dudes off this biometric naval watch list. And it's like, okay, hold on. Even if they're ju just to your four, it's like that means they've been detained or they were bad enough to where it's like you can't come on the base. You can't get hired if you're on tier four. So you can't get a DOD contract in Afghanistan. So let's say some dude, you know, again, his bad guy gets rolled up. Not only is he denied on being on base, but you also can't empty our garbage cans either. It's like, no, screw you. You're done. And so if it's bad enough to be out there, why the hell are we going to bring him to the country then? Like this, this makes no sense. Why is this happening? They were taking them off this watch list. So right away, it's like, that's kind of bad as it is. Right. Yeah. But now it goes one step further. Now we get into vetting because screening is like, you know, you kind of look for somebody. Vetting is like, well, who are you really? 
And when you're vetting somebody, I look at it as the way you put somebody on the, 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 the actual terrorism watch list. And to do that, you have to have a few things. You have to have their identity completely known. So you have to have their biometric information, their biographic information, name, phone number, whatever, and also like behavioral stuff. Like really, who are you? What's your job? Where are you from? Whatever. Then you also have to have um, particular derogatory information with a nexus to terrorism. A little bit of legalese, you know, legalese, government use in there. But it's, it's a standard structure process. It's like, no, you can't just put anybody to watch this. It's got to be a legit bad guy. We have to be able to prove it through these things. Mm-hmm. So when you put somebody on, like you're looking for like all these categories of information. But when they're vetting somebody, all they do really is they check for the phone numbers. They check for the email addresses. So like, oh, have we seen this phone number? He gave us his phone number. Is this anywhere inside of our databases? No, you're good. So it's a voluntary testimony of them giving us their phone numbers and email addresses. It's like, yeah, we might be able to find more. That can happen. That's part of the investigation. That's not vetting. You're not really getting into these guys, though. So you're doing the biometric, definitely. They're doing the biographic somewhat. We're kind of learning it, but we're not looking at all for the behavioral. And this is sound, the problem. And then in the meantime, you said they're they're removing people from this JPEL list, from the other lists domestically, like back home. Who's they? Who's who's the ones that are actually pulling this stuff off? Is that State Department? So I don't know, but the no, but I don't know who did it because I it's not there wasn't like a trail of it. But if you're on the the DOD Buell watch list, the biometric enabled watch list. That's the National Ground Intelligence Center. I used to work there. I know that mission. Maybe DHS was doing it with them by being like, hey, these guys came in, take them off the mule. That could have been happening also, but there's no way in hell that DOD would sit there with their contract work and the government employees. They wouldn't go like, hey, this thing's all going out of Afghanistan. Let's take all these guys off the mule. They, they wouldn't do that. That's not a mission they'd be doing. Right. So I definitely think they were operating in because first of all, there's no money in that. That's yeah, that's a proactive thing. Like that's not how government works anyway. Like government holds records; right. they don't destroy records unless there's a reason to. At least that's my experience. Yeah. I'm and, sure you had similar. Correct. And to anybody right now going like, is there an expiration date? No, it's not like you're on there five years and no activity you fall off. It's not like that at all. You're on, you're on, right? And. So, so yeah, that part's that. And then when it came to the vetting again, we're not looking at these dudes of who they really are. And again, this is the big problem because we were there for 20 years. Like we were really good with intelligence. Sure. And yeah, it's hard. It's hard to find the guys based on their name because Afghan names are kind of weird. Like they might change in your life over time. According to who knows you, it's, it's kind of strange. The thing is though, it's like, but we dominated the battle space. We had these things called civil affair groups. And they would go out there and they would run information operations. They would know the, the human terrain very, very well. Um, we had human terrain systems to understand these things better too. And all you got to do is like, okay, well, where's this guy from? What's his village? And you can look up like – you can literally take a, a many programs. Like Palantir has got these things. There's other um, – I, would, I wouldn't know what to call them. But basically like you take a map like Google. You draw a circle around it and then you can like – here are all the significant activity reports of like firefights and bombings from this year to this year. Okay, I don't want those. I want to look for like, you know, information intelligence reports. Okay, cool. Here's something over here. And like, you can really know what's going on. Plus, because all these biometrics were also geotagged, you can literally see the footprint of where this guy's been in Afghanistan. So it's like, yeah, it would be slow. It would take a long time. And that's what vetting is. It's not just like, you know, what's your name? What's your phone number? What's your email address? Uh, it doesn't exist. He's good. Go. So I'm going to, yeah, I want to show you a story that I had of, uh, one of the women that we dealt with. I think I've said this before on this podcast, but, uh, I had a lady that we were interviewing about, man, I don't even remember what the context was. Maybe her husband was supposedly beating her or something. We, we went out for all the domestic violence and stuff like that. So I'm dealing with this lady 
and she's got her identification that was issued either at Qatar or Ramstein. And um, so we're looking at it and we got an interpreter there because we've got a female interpreter to talk to her and and she goes, you know, are you um are you this name? And she says, yes. And she says, and you're and you're 25. And she says, no. And she goes, well, it says you're 25. And she's like, yeah, but I'm not 25. They just wrote that on my ID. And we go, well, <laughs> I, I, so I, I said, well, how old is she? And she goes, I'm 23. And I was like, ask her if she knows why it says she's 25 on her ID. And she's like, Oh yeah, she like it's real animated. She was like, when I was getting my ID, I told the lady that I was uh, 23, and she said, "No, you're too tall to be 23. You're 25," and that's what they wrote down, and that's what that is what made it to the documents that me as an FBI agent was dealing with, and so that's the level of scrutiny that these documents were generated with. It was that you're too tall to be 23 for a woman, so you're obviously 25. People cannot fathom the level, uh, like the 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 shallowness of the vetting that was going on. And if it's like, what's your phone number? What's your name? And you decided you're like, man, there's some really bad dudes named Kyle Serafin. I'm not going to be Kyle Serafin. I'm going to be Tyler Carafin. You're like, that's it. <laughs> like, that's who you are now. And then you just got to remember that a few times when they, when you go through and remember what your ID says. And so we got people that did that, I'm sure. And we're able to get away with it because they all got brand new cell phones as they came over. Some of these guys were coming oh, yeah. over with like pockets full of cash too. I don't know if you knew about that. Oh yeah, but- definitely. Like some of the guys, yeah, like they, they emptied, that. they emptied bank accounts. They got either paid out by us forces, uh, or they got, you know, helped out in some ways, but some of them would come over and they'd have like 10, 15, $20,000 worth of cash. And then what do they do with it? They're on a refugee camp in the middle of an, like an army base in the middle of the desert. So they just, uh, paid for hookers because <laughs> there were women that were hooking on the bases, which we saw as well. And it's like, that was a commander's problem. That was not a, that was not an FBI problem, but there were some, you know, yeah knockout women that were trying to find somebody who had some cash and like put their own thing together and didn't speak any English. But I guarantee you there's some army guys that probably gave them a thought about making them a citizen here because <laughs> people are people, man. People are still people. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Joe is still Joe. So if Joe finds a beautiful Afghan wife who comes here and <laughs> wants to get smart, I know, I know you were in the Marine Corps, but you know who Joe is. Yes. You gotta, love, good, dude. You gotta love Joe. We, um, the Marine Corps term of that is uh Lance Corps Schmuckatelli. Yes. Our Joe is Schmokatelli. Schmokatelli. Um, yeah, can I continue that, by the way, with the vetting? Please. Just, like how bad it is? Yeah, I want you to. All right, so, and by the way, the people that are vetting, they don't know what's going on in Afghanistan. Like, they don't understand the the what has happened over yeah, time. Yeah, what, what personal... Most of these dudes do you, don't, haven't been there. Who are they? Are they contractors? Are they are they DOS, state, or what, what do you think? Well, so a lot of it was done by USCIS, and I know those guys, and, you know, a lot of these dudes are pretty good, and they're actually good analysts. Problem is... They are given this mission and these these parameters to stay inside of. So, and they're also being told like get the job done. So they have to do the vetting this way. Mm-hmm. And you've got good analysts here that could do a lot more. But it's like no, once you once you hit the you 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 fulfilled the vetting requirements and the standard checklist, blah, blah, blah. But it's like but there's more you can do, guys. You know that. And so one example is this. Um, and a lot of these guys know Afghanistan too. That's the other problem. It's like you can really leverage these dudes in a much better way. Not all of them. Some guys are just like, you know, Intel guys because they got it somewhere else. But there was about 72 checkpoints like all around the airport of like Taliban checkpoints. This is back in, they um, are, in Kabul. This is back, this, yeah, back in Kabul. And this is during the evacuation, right? So these are Taliban that are looking very thoroughly to find certain dudes. Well, some of those guys they wanted to make sure didn't leave were like Afghan security forces. 
And typically you can identify those guys because they might have an ID on them. Well, that's easy. Ditch the ID. Bam. Okay. Some of these guys can identify because they're wearing like the Afghan National Army uniform. Bam. And so typically you wouldn't be able to get to those checkpoints if you're wearing the army uniform because they're looking for it. Right. Right. That checks. So one of the... So one of the guys that came in who ended up landing in, I think, Dulles, and like three weeks later, the FBI does an investigation on him. Turns out he's a terrorist. Well, in his – and I'm going through these guys, and I see in his initial photograph, his, his first first ever collection we have on him for his biometrics. Because remember, we know the chronological order of him coming in. And it's like, that's weird. He's wearing an Afghan army uniform. All right, whatever. I'm like, wait a minute. This guy's a – he's, he's a terrorist. He is a, a – Straight up on the watch list, you know, tier one, armed dangerous. Why is he in an Afghan army uniform? Where's the thing taken at? That thing was taken in a Ramstein Air Base. That guy landed in Germany wearing that outfit. It's like, wait a minute. Why do I not see any other enrollment? Because don't forget, if you were in the Afghan National Security Forces, you had to put down your fingerprints and get enrolled. It's like, so why the hell did he not pop up before then? This makes no sense. So I try a few other variations to find him, and we don't at all. So it's like, okay, so now the vetting analyst, he sees this. He doesn't obviously know about the information about, you know, you got to be part of it to be a part of the Afghan security forces. You got to go through this process. Obviously, they didn't know that because the first thing you would see is how the hell did you get to this checkpoint wearing that? And where is it to begin with? Like, why is this guy enrolled previously? Yeah, flags all turns around. Out within a, right. Turns out within a few weeks, oh, yeah, he's actually a, oh, by the way, this guy is a category seven, which is threat if enters the United States. That's the the banner of a Category 7 t- a terrorist. And it's like, and we brought the guy in. So now I'm sitting there going, like, DHS isn't even 20 years old yet. You know, this thing got established in 2003 in the wake of 9-11 because terrorists came in the country and attacked us. Literally the purpose and, that it was developed for. Right. And not even 20 years later, we are flying the terrorists from the same <laughs> that same area back over here again. Right. And, and it's like, you got to be kidding me. All right, and so the failures look like this. Like, first of all, nobody should have been showing up in Ransdien Air Force Base um, wearing an ANA uniform under any circumstances. Right, because they should have been pulled off the Taliban. Because they would have been pulled off by the Taliban and probably killed. So the only people that came through Mm -hmm. should have initially, those should have been suspect right away. That's watch list number one for people who are paying attention, but that was not us. And then number two, um, if they are wearing an ANA uniform, then their biometrics have to show up and they have to match the name on the tag and they have to match the name on the ID and everything else. Right. Because otherwise that guy's a fake. Yeah. It's and if it's a fake. This how is... do you get through the checkpoint? Maybe Taliban pushed their guys through. Maybe ISIS pushed their guys through. And this is one so example, just... but how many, how many hard examples did you have? Or was this the only one example that you could really drill down on that, you know, of? Oh, no, there's so many. So I came across a list of 600, like, at, you know, dudes that were like, you know, these guys might be shady. Like, there's a list about 600. And I just kind of started going through there. And I'm already, by the way, under investigation at DHS. At this point, um, you're you're being investigated yeah. because you're I'm already, already a under problem. investigation. But so I'm going through this list and I was like, all right, you know, I'm like, I'll look up the first like dozen or so guys. So copy, paste, search, nothing. Okay, nothing. There's like four guys. It's like, oh, wait, that dude. He was a prior detainee. How was he detained for? And I'm looking up the information. I'm like, this dude's a bad guy. This guy's a national security concern. Like, definitely. This dude's a bad dude. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go through all of them now. So I go back to the top again, and I start going down, bop, 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 bop. And I think by the time I got to, like, the 17th guy, he was on the he was on the watch list. And, I'm, and like, I'm not kidding. Like, he landed, let's say, like, the 31st. By, like, September 20th or October 3rd, he's already on the watch list. So, 
And it's like, like you guys gotta be kidding me. So out of the 600, there were, I think around, I think there was like 35 to 50 terrorists, like dudes on the watch list or dudes taken off the watch list. You Here's said 35 to 50? Yeah, and that this is a list of 600 out of 88,000. So one of these guys gets to America, He's coming in through the checkpoint of CBP. We, you know, if you've flown internationally, you got to go to the CBP officer. And then they're like, "Oh, snap! This guy's actually on the terrorist watch list." So they fly him back to where? And then they fly him back, like back to like Germany or Qatar. And then they take him off the watch list. Then they fly him back in again. And it's like, <laughs> it's like they okay, flew him so back out this. to take him off the list, and then brought him back in. Right. So it's like, okay, so either this dude is. Just he's okay. A source or he's something or right. I mean, that is that's the only possibility, right? So he had decided to cooperate in some way with friendlies or something like that. Um, so here's here's the other thing. I knew that we had a bunch of guys. Are you familiar with the uh, Coast Province Force? Are you familiar with them? K H O Afghanistan, yeah. K H O, yeah. Yeah. So Coast uh, Coast Province Force was like a militia group in that area that worked. Man, with I don't this... I don't like know these guys, but yeah, yeah. Sure, of... sure enough. So there was like thirty five or forty of them that had come in from. Uh, from coast and they, they'd come in, you know, as a unit and they had been prior, you know, fighters on behalf of some CIA interests. So some, probably some gray level interest and, um, yeah, who knows. Right. So they, they set up a camp in, um, this was at Holloman. They were in Holloman. They had like 35, 40 dudes and they set up their own little outpost. And these are all like 28 to 40 year old men. They've all seen combat. They're all walking like that. Cause you can see, yeah, they know you, can, you, you know who they are. They're different than the rest of these people that are hanging out with their families and trying to figure out like, you know, where the toilet is. These guys are like, they're, they've, they have a unit and they have cohesion. And, uh, I guess one of the things they did was they decided to grab them. Do you know what chai boys are? Yep. So they grabbed a, a kid who was 17 years old city kid. That's old. That's old for a chai boy. For sure. He was young looking though. And so they, I mean, he was. So they grabbed him and then they pulled him away from his two older brothers who were like 20 and 22 or 21 or 21 and 24 or something like that. Uh, shoved them off in Germany, said he's with us, took them, pushed him through, got his ID to say that he was 19, not 17. So now an adult by American standards, flew him in the United States. His brothers went to Virginia where they had family. They had an uncle up there and that's where they ended up in Northern Virginia landed at Dulles and went on to the rest of their life. You know, I talked to the uncle on the phone, um, spoke great English, had a small business of some kind, like a carpet business maybe, or something to that effect construction, but a nice enough guy had been in the country for 10 years, like productive member of society, the kind of people yeah. that you'd hope would come over here and do what you would expect when you, when you join America. And the two, the two boys are with him boys being in their you know early twenties. Um, uh, this kid is gone just totally, nobody knows what happened to him. And the only reason he shows up is because, I don't know if he made an allegation to somebody or if someone made an allegation that they had seen something happen and they ID'd him and he sort of like indicated he might've been the kid. But essentially these guys, about 20 of them were keeping him under guard at all times. Like, you know, five to six dudes were like surrounding him at all times, holding on to their prize. And then they would just get him boozed up and were taking advantage of him sexually. And so, you know, take him to the showers together with a couple of dudes yeah. or whatever. And of course that's, of course he's 17 years old. I mean, he's 19 years old rather. Sorry, no, he was 17 because he was underage. Yeah. So he's underage, um, which was the only saving grace in, in when I got in there. But, uh, you know, end of the day, he's, I'm sure, shockingly embarrassed. 
and he's dealing with this foreign culture and he's looking at this dude. He doesn't know anything about me. And so I'm trying to explain to him, like, I just need you to tell me what happened because I'm going to go after these guys. And we couldn't get it out of him in the end. But like, I knew that he was old and he was young enough that he was too young to be in the adult end of the camp. And because of that, I was able to pull him out and got a DHS guy and we, we sent him to Virginia. I'm sure he'll be traumatized forever. I mean, um, yep. wrecked, you know what I mean? And like, so that's one little story yep. of like human destruction that happened because of failure to vet, because of inaccurate uh, information. And because, you know, we took a bunch of dirt balls that were in the CIA, that were in the CIA operations over there and brought them over. And generally speaking, I'd say we err on the side of bringing over our allies. Uh, I think those guys would have been probably just fine if they stayed there too, because they seem like scumbags. <laughs> they, uh, they chased five uh, Air Force security forces uh, members that were in full like battle rattle. They look sort of ridiculous, like a little doughy, you know, I don't know if you know Air Force security forces, but I have a uh, a love hate responsibility with them because I, I my they got time, cool berets though I remember that you don't even want to get me started on where <laughs> they got that beret because they actually stole that from combat control back in the day but um, all that being said uh, there's like you know six armed members of our military on U.S. soil in an American Air Force base and these guys literally stalked through the streets trying to keep their kid that we that we were taking. And at the end of it, what happened was, and I'm, and I'm uh, kind of a funny dude. So like everyone, I went out to the Indian reservation and whenever I went out to these, these, uh, these two camps, I always have a, I've got a white Stetson. It's a straw Stetson for work. Cause I oh, sweat through so it all awesome. the time and I've got, uh, some Justin all American cowboy boots. And so I would wear my Stetson and I'd wear my boots and I'd wear jeans and I'd wear an open pistol rig. And so that's what I'm in. Like, you know, like a tactical Please, please tell me. And you can lie to me. It was a revolver, right? I do have a like revolver. A seven, I, just to I, say yes. So I've got a 44 mag version of that. That's like nine inches of Western justice. But uh, I don't wear that on duty. So I didn't wear that on this particular thing. But I'm wearing like lock and I'm wearing my stuff. And I got my badge and all this stuff. And uh, so, yeah. So we're walking through. I go and get the kid. And we, you know, witness, victim interview, interpreter, the whole deal. I tell him I'm going to go back with him with the... Um, was it? I think the first sergeant goes with me and we go and we gather all the kids stuff up and I'm like, I'm not going to leave your side and I'm not going to let anyone touch you again. Like you're, you're done with these dudes. I almost swear right yeah. now, but, um, I don't feel good about any of those clowns. So we get all of his stuff. He starts leaving first sergeants with him, got the armed guard and we get this like mob following us. Like I said, probably like a half dozen and growing. And I turned to the first sergeant and I was like, I was like, Hey shirt, sure, just get him out of here. You take him take your security forces and get out of here, take them where he needs to go. And I'm going to stand here. And I just stood in the middle of the street, like, like a gunfighter, <laughs> like just like a complete. And I, and I just looked at him and they're grinning at me because these guys aren't scared of much, you know? And, uh, and I, and I kind of gave him one of these things. Like I just kind of gave him the eyes, you know, and, and they're kind of like chuckling at it. And I don't think they understood English or if they did, they weren't going to let on to it. And I just said something to the effect of, I was like, if you keep following this boy, I'm going to shoot you dead in the middle of this base, you know? And I just stood there for about eight minutes, you know, until they got away. And then I kind of did a, like a slow about face and walked off and that was the end of it for them. But these guys were totally unfazed by being in our country and they have no interest in following, you know, they, they brought their oh, culture. No. So not, not concerned in the least because they know exactly who generally speaking Americans are. And that, that was their experience when they got to the camp. And of course, in the meantime, yeah. they've got like, they had a couple of agency dudes that were on the base that were like giving them stuff and you know, hooking them up with new things and, you know, new phones and cash and whatever else. And they weren't even supposed to be on the base. But I mean, yeah. people don't understand how crazy these, these bases were. They were mini foreign territories because we had 10,000 foreign nationals that were, as you mentioned, very, very poorly vetted. We had 
dozens of of government agencies in there from DIA to CIA to you know FBI to probably some NSA posts there was every branch of the of the uh, the armed forces and all of their intel branches were all set up in these big huts so we'd go into like the com- the comms booth and you'd literally look and there'd be 150 people in a big tent you know, and everybody had their little enclave of what they were doing. And some people had maps and some people were, you know, organizing Red Cross and some people were trying to figure out how to get people, you know, clothing or food or, you know, organized logistics. And some people were over here doing the DHS mission and and doing vetting and trying to figure out who's who. I mean, it was insane. They had human sources that were being reported in. They had debrief rooms that they were bringing in their sources. It was, it was insane. I have to imagine it was like the end of a war on the other end. And we just brought it here and we did the end of the war here basically yeah and 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 that's how you end up with minimum dozens but i mean how comfortable would you say if you said well, you saw about eight percent it looks like right eight percent of the of the 600 you looked at do you think that held across the bigger even if it was five percent of eighty-eight thousand? no because i'm looking at this in like february and they were still adding and some of these guys i'm looking up and on the watch list and they're getting put on like a few days prior so no i'm short ending this thing when i say like 35 to 50 that's out of 600. Now, it's important to understand this too. That is the the, the actual the terrorist watch list, which again has a high threshold to get on. Right. It doesn't include the other bad guys on the DOD biometric watch list. And the sad part is there are people at DHS that are like, oh, that's just a DOD mule. It's like, yeah, these are the guys that were bad guys in Afghanistan. They're gonna be bad guys here too. Well, it's like this is not hard. And uh, no, so if I was to give a number out of the eighty-eight thousand, I'd say at least five thousand, give or take, minimum. But here's the crazy part, though. So even dudes on this terrorist watch list, they're not all just Category 7, like threat in the United States. Right. They're not all Category 3, like group member. There were dudes on there that were like collections. They were like intelligence officers. We had one guy, I know, was Category 15. He actually used explosives or firearms. So he's an actual fighter. But there was also recruiters. There were religious leaders. There were all kinds of categories of these dudes on this watch list. And it's like, okay, there's no way that they're all just hanging around the airport. Like this was, I think, an effort by them to get into the country, to do whatever, to just to continue operations, because that's still their goal is to bring down the United States. They still want to attack us via, via terrorism, right. even though it's been 20 years since 9-11 or whatever at the time. So it doesn't matter. They they have an interest in defeating us. And we jacked and up their, we jacked up their territory for, for two decades. Yeah, we pissed them. Yeah, we just said they had hornet's nest and just kept throwing rocks at it. It's like, yeah, what is going to happen now? What, um... Were you aware that people, once they got to these bases, whether it was in uh, Dover, I think there was one, there was definitely one in Delaware somewhere. And one of my buddies was the XO there. And then, um, you know, we had the two that were in my area. There was probably like six or seven of them across the country. Um, Were you familiar with the fact that they could just walk off, that they didn't have to check in or with anybody that they literally could just walk? Did you know that? No. Are you serious? So we had several hundred. No, that's not exaggerating. I, I think like somewhere between two and 400 um, when I was paying attention to it before I was uh, unceremoniously removed from my abilities to be part of the, uh, the FBI's operations. But we had several hundred who literally just walked off, grabbed an Uber and they're gone. And just gone wherever. Yeah. yeah. Because it was, because they weren't yeah, being, and, they um, weren't being detained. So they weren't under guard. They literally could walk down the road, call an Uber, as long as it didn't go through the, uh, you know, through the army checkpoint, but they could walk around the checkpoint, which would take 10 feet like the army was not authorized to stop them from leaving the base and neither were the, uh, it was a little bit harder uh, at Holloman because Holloman, just the, the geographic location of it, it's much more structured and the camp was deep into the actual base. So you had to actually walk through the entire Air Force base 
um, which is a little bit daunting, I think, for a lot of people. But for Fort Bliss, where it was, it was on its own section out where the shooting ranges were. They basically just set up this like tent city. And so it was all by itself. There was a road that went through there normally, but it was cut off to normal traffic. And you got turned around if you were like a trucker or something. But it cuts literally from El Paso, like all the way into the center part of um, of White Sands, which is kind of deep in the heart of the southern part of New Mexico. So you can literally roll all the way through and they just shut that off. But you could walk from the camps. It would have taken you 15 minutes to just end up on a road. And you could have called an Uber yeah. if you knew what you were doing. And then some people walked north, maybe like 15 miles or 20 miles. Honestly, if you walked 30 miles, you would have got to my house. Because I was 26 miles north, like through a little mountain pass. And you literally yeah. would end up um, right in my neighborhood, which was if you kept walking. Like when I went on the hikes that I used to go, uh, you could walk up to this fence and it was like, you know, by commander of the, of the you know, Holloman Air Force Base, you can't go here. And then if you turned around and you went like 300 yards the other way, it would be like, you know, by order of the White Sands Missile Range Commander, yeah. you can't go here. And you're like, dude, like neither of these things are even close. I mean, they're miles and miles and miles and a mountain range on the other end of it. Uh, but those were all U.S. Army and U.S. Air Force property. But for whatever reason, you these people just walked off. Uh, literally hundreds of them from the camps that I'm aware of. And like I said, they were five or six. And that was in a very, very small amount of time. Um, well, so and, really quick, let's just, I'm going to play this thing out really fast. So these were dudes that were, they knew they can get off. Yep. Okay. They did. And they knew how to like get out of there. So like, you know, do an Uber, right? Okay. So who would have that ability to know all those kind of things, right? Either dudes that know the system and they're, they've maybe been here before. Maybe they're kind of Westernized. Okay. Got family. Are those guys going to be brazen enough? Yeah. But are they going to be brazen enough to violate, know what they're doing is wrong? It's like, no, because if they're trying to escape you know, whatever, I think they're going to try to maybe follow the process just to go through whatever. Not all of them, maybe. Sure. But it's like, no, because in theory, there was like some sort of right paperwork thing. you would get at the end of this. Right. I mean, that's the goal. Like they stuck around and then uh, State Department or uh, a CIS, I guess, would probably be the one like you get a parolee number, you get paperwork, you get access to you money. Work authorization card. Yeah. Work authorization. Like you get all these things. These people and abandon that so altogether. Right. So then it's like, okay, so then who would want to get the hell out of there as fast as you can, even though you have all these good things coming your way? It's like probably guys are bad guys. I'm sorry. If there's a hundred, I would say there's twelve. You know what I mean? It's like it's just there's it's just no way it's that, just a numbers game. Yeah. Does that make you exactly it's just that point. It's like there's so many. No, you can you can make it just you know, probably that many. Easy. Yeah, statistical statistical uh smattering uh, once you start looking at it, you know, the the roughly a hundred thousand people that came in here. Um, knowing that, so you didn't know that before you and I just talked right now, No. does that make no you idea. more or less worried? I mean, it's just more, but it's like, why am I shocked, Aaron? It's like, you know, of course that happened. Of course that happened. Why am I shocked? That's my fault, actually. <laughs> that you're shocked. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, That's it's, upsetting. it's truly nuts to think that, uh, well, and I think this is because we had so many different government entities that were involved and nobody owned any process of it. So everybody was like, not me. Literally, when I showed up, they'd That's be like, my job. Yeah, they'd be like, hey, FBI, like come in and do this thing. And it's like, what are we doing? And they're like, somebody got into a fight in the tent. And it's like, what happened? They're like, they kicked her shin really hard and she has a bruise. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, is she bleeding still? And they're like, no, it's just a bruise. And I'm like, like, the only thing that made sense is that I worked on the Indian reservation where that sort of absurdity would like, normally that would come in and you'd go, is the leg broken off permanently? Because that's our standard. Like, unless they no longer are able to use that limb, like kicking somebody in the shin doesn't count. Unless yes. they're, you know, you've lost limb or function of limb permanently, or at least 
for a long period of time. No, you know, you break a face, you, you facial fractures on a punch, maybe we'll go in for those kind of things. That's actually like not even that easy. But we had an agreement of like what we could and couldn't go and investigate that the locals would deal with. Really? So, oh, yeah, yeah. And it was like, it was very specific. And we rarely ever got there. Like it had to be death or serious physical entry, um, which which is pretty narrowly defined under federal law, Gosh. too. So that was like yeah. what we could go do. They had local police departments for... Um, for the Indian reservation. And then when we were dealing with the Afghan refugee camps, it's not like anybody was dying. So sexual assault would have been our game. Um, cause that's pretty straightforward, but then it would have had to been a, like a really aggressive, aggressive beating. And we had a couple guys that got tuned up. Like one dude, I guess he went over to some chick and he said, uh, Hey, you're my wife right now. And then she was like, I don't want to be your wife. Uh, and he was like, no, by our customs, like you're my wife. And she was like, I don't think so. So she went and talked to the elders and then like six dudes tuned him up, <laughs> explained to him that he's not, able to take this wife i mean actually I, i'm kind of like fair enough like you know like i don't know what I you're trying i don't know what your system is but it sounds like you straightened him out i don't really want to deal with this like i don't even that's results yeah yeah the result is uh you know and then it was on an army base so what do we do with that and then the commander's kind of like we gave him a warning and told them not to beat up people anymore and we we're like yeah that's yeah. good that, i mean that sounds reasonable don't beat up people but nobody got a briefing when they came over to like what are the laws of this country what are you beholden to so they don't know that's the other big thing we talk about so forget about like the people that are actually here to cause uh, problems how about the people that don't understand our cultural norms and got no briefing on it at all none so there are these things that um states do but they can like do like a familiarity they can do some culturalization they reach out to like new refugees whatever like hey by the way you're in america now this is how we are right yeah. So I reached out to one of the states that was, you know, I was living in and I was like, Hey, do you guys want like, um, some briefing material on like Afghan culture on what these guys have gone through on, you know, being pastoon versus whatever. And then they were like, yeah, like, cause we do not have a lot of Afghans out here. So I was like, yeah, let me, let me take out a few Hit up work. Hey work. Like here's the, you know, the, the state entity over here and I'm trying to help them out and whatever. Can you guys give me some like briefing materials that like, you know, I won't give it to them. I'll just give it, I'll like literally transfer them. I'm not going to brief them, but like, you know, can I just help them out? They're like, no, that's not your job, Aaron. And it's just like, again, like I'm hearing it again. This is the nature of how it works. It's just, this is the, this is the real status though of how our government operates on that, on that level. So yeah, it was kind of upsetting. I think this is a good um, kind of final topic to kind of end on, but it, it, it should explain to people like the dysfunction, as you mentioned, you shouldn't be surprised, even though you are. And like the the depths of the stupidity should not ever surprise us. Uh, kind of like the depths of like they what always do. It's like what, what it's like what a would left you, hook. It's like, whoa, where'd that come from? Right. You know, because we have this like uh, innate belief that one, people are mission focused and two, that people want to do their job. And we know enough people that are. That's the real thing. I think this is the reason why them coming after you for the child trafficking situation, um, the FBI coming after me, it's the same surprise because you're like, wait, I thought we were all on the team to do the right thing here. I, I'm just doing what yeah. I think is right. Even if that, even if you disagree with me and there's like some consequences for it, that's okay. Just be honest about it. And then we can all still be friends. Yeah. Not when you go about it dishonestly or when you go like, sorry, that's not my job. I don't actually do uh, citizenship and immigration services. That's just the name of the agency. What I do is this very narrow box. Um, so I used to tell people this. Okay. There's a parable for this. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah. You'll like this. There's a parable of of uh, stone cutters. Okay, so a man's walking down the road and he sees these men and they're cutting stone. 
and there's a, a cathedral being built like in the whatever in the city and so he knows about this and he asked the first guy he goes what do you you know what are you doing and he goes well i'm i'm a stone cutter and um you know i am chipping away at exactly this size block and uh and, and i'm you know just these specific dimensions and so on and that's what i'm generating and and he's like oh okay um and so then he asked the other guy and and he goes well, you know what are you doing and he's like well i'm i'm on a team we're building a cathedral and we have a lot of the like stone cutters that are just really interested in like cutting the block exactly to the specifications that they're interested in, right? I think there's three stone cutters, but I can't remember the third right now. So you lose part of the parable. I'll have to text it to you. Um, but like a lot of people are cutting that stone to hit the exact metrics. It's like, these are the checklist things that I do. I only vet as far as I need to go and I don't do any further. And then there's the people that are on the team that you and I are on. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm on the team that cuts the stone, but like, if you need me to carry it, then I'm going to help carry it. And if we're going to hoist it or you need me to mix mortar to like, I'm on the team that's building a th cathedral. So yeah, part, I, just because I have a skill we, set doesn't mean we don't do more. We have that one as uh, as analysts. It's similar. Um, you have gophers or sorry, you have groundhogs and you've got foxes. Okay. Like groundhogs, they know a lot about a little, they go deep, but in like this, yep. but foxes, they kind of hop around. They know a lot about a little, they know a little about a lot of stuff though. So like a jack of all trades. Yep. And that's the problem with the specialization of, you know, like government function, you want to get like the best, whatever they want to get. And people will stay in that craft for a long time. And yeah, you're, what you're saying is spot on though, is like, it's so, it's so, I don't want to say compartmented, but like tunneled where it's like, I only do this. I do this form. I it's do rigid. questions one through six. Yep. And it's like, yeah, but did you understand that question 17 needs your input better for this thing? And it's just like, no, why? I'm not doing that. I, no I, I, I did it already. Yeah. Um, <sighs> the, the, when you're rigid and you're right, as you get deeper in that tunnel, you have less wiggle room because you can only go down and you can, and you can go up, right. but you can't go depth. But if you're shallow, you can kind of keep pushing outward uh, and have more and you need both to be fair. Right. I mean, we could, we would agree you. with that and you have to have a good mix of those, but without that mix, you get either rigidity or maximum flexibility where it never gets the mission done, but you can't do both. And unfortunately, right. we either hire one or the other type. <laughs> like, uh, I find like Intel shops tend to be very compartmentalized. It's like, we're all, we're all deep diggers. Like, what'd you call them? Groundhogs? Groundhogs. We're all groundhogs here or everyone's a fox. And like, but like the foxes don't know every single thing you need to know when you get to the deep subject. You don't have that guy. And you really need people that are moving around. You need both. Like the, like so many things, mm -hmm. the answer is both. And, um, and that's not how government hiring works, it turns out. And it's not how uh, government missions tend to work. They get what they call siloed, right? Uh, oh, very. Compartmented, siloed, and then people get rigid in their, in their thinking and they're not flexible. And then if you're not, if your job is stone cutter and your job is not part of the, the cathedral team, then you're not going to go above and beyond, which is why you found a problem. Maybe it's why I found a problem. Maybe because my, my people are always team people. And, and you're, that's what matters. Well, and, and your empathy towards the guys that were out there in the fob, bringing them stuff. That's a team mentality. It's like, look, we're all on the same right. team and your team and your situation sucks right now. And mine is like marginally better. And, and it's a very Christian thing to do. We'll come full circle with this is to, what is the team need from me to give a, a you know, like give to, to others. It ends up being the right thing for the mission. It's the right thing for them. And it's the right thing for you. Cause it feels good to be part of the team that's winning. And if you don't do those things, I mean, a lot of these things, there's a reason why Western society is built on Christian ideology um, and Christian understandings, because if you don't yeah. do those things, 
Uh, everything sucks a little bit more, and you end up with a bunch of terrorists running around waiting for something to blow up in our country right now, which is where we're living, which is such a crazy thing to think about. And, it, and, and that's the crazy part, too, because it's like there's already the Southwest border being wide open. And it's like we know you've got the transnational crime mill coming in. We know there's terrorists coming in. I can guarantee you now because like before in the you know the old days of immigration – like spies and foreign actors and foreign intelligence, they had to like wiggle their way through the immigration networks and they might get caught. It's like, no, now you can just go across the border and claim asylum. And it's like, you are protected. You're now in the game. You're good, actually. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it's, it sucks being in it and it sucks looking back on it because you know it still exists. But um, that's the worst part, too, is like, you know, when you try to explain to people, like, just how bad it is and just like not without being on a still being like, you know, big doomer guy, but it's like, no guys, it's like, it's, you know, it's bad, but it's like, but, but it is really worse on a systemic level. And it's like, you try to get the people to understand that. And it's just like, it's hard because it's a lot of information. And sometimes people just kind of like, you know, they start checking out and you know, where there goes. <laughs> you watch but, their um, eyes just start failing on you. They just can't handle it. It happens to everybody. If, if, if people talk to me about like, you know, I don't know, science stuff. I'm like, well, well you know, it happens to everybody. No, you're but, right. Um, it, yeah, it's it's upsetting though because that is the nature of government though, especially the, we said the hiring process, and that goes on so many different levels too. And that's just, it is, it sucks. Any any uh, any positive thoughts that you have since you've been out? You've had some time to reflect on it. Anything that you think is going to be uh, moving the needle in the right direction that you're seeing now that you're kind of a little bit away from the problem, or is it all just frustrating? It's guys like you. It's people that talk about this and have platforms and like really get these things out there. Um, because that, that, that wasn't that wasn't meant message. to be a plug for me, but that's nice. That's very thoughtful of you to say. No, but 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 it's like, but that's the thing though. And I'm not trying to start bashing big networks and whatever. But it's like you go into stuff, you get things deep. And I'm sorry, like there's half the media out there, which is state media. If they got this information, they would use it to kill the story. Mm-hmm. And you guys don't like you. You guys really per, you know pursue these things and really kind of get it out there. Um, and I don't care if it goes out to a smaller audience. It's an audience that kind of cares and it's a lot more active. So it's hitting more people that do things with it as opposed to the, you know, 3 million viewers that will sit there and just go, we'll consume it, change the channel. And, you know, it's kind of gone. So I have hope for that. Um, I've talked to people as a whole. I've gone to Twitter spaces all the time. I talk to people. I like, I like being those things to partake when I can, but also to listen. And, um, you know, I, I still think people are weirdly hopeful on like too many things. And I try to remind them like, you know, yeah, but guys, like the state is still really bad. Like that's the problem. And I'm seeing them kind of come around now, like accepting it with like, you know, well, yeah, there is that. And it's like, that's good. Hey, as long as you understand, like don't have all your eggs in one basket for an option because some people are just way too like, let's vote our way out of this thing. And it's like, yeah, that's not going to happen in that way, is it? Yeah. It's like, just, just, I, I, I always tell people that don't get it. I'm like, just please make 10 friends in 10 miles. Like just, just build a network and like really get a good rapport because that's, that's worth it in the long run. Um, the last thing I think, too, tell me this, do you so, feel like there's a, an advantage guys like you and me coming fresh out of these, these different experiences, but now not being burdened with sort of the government non-disclosures or not, not even the non-disclosures. Cause that's not what we're dealing with. The, uh, yeah. the you know, the, the have to filter everything through public affairs. Does that give you some, some ability to, so to share much. information in a way that you think is like, cause it's really hard knowing this stuff and not being able to talk about it, obviously. And you did it for a long time. Yeah. That, yeah. And I'm not gonna lie to you. There was at, at the end before I went to, uh, to Veritas, there's a point where it's like, I would go home and I'd be in tears at nighttime. And it's just like, 
because I'm sitting there like I'd go, I'd go watch like my you know my kids' games, or whatever. I'd be in the airport, or I'd be whatever, and I would I people watch right. And I'm sitting there going like these people really don't understand how bad it is. And it's like and how could they? Because their media doesn't tell them these things because they're not trying to because they you know. But now that it's out, oh, it's it is so it's not just refreshing. It feels like it's almost like I kind of feel like revved up to be like. No, let's talk about this. Like, let's actually get these things out there. Yeah. And no, it, I've it seen helps, the way you've been coming at people learn. I've been seeing the way you've been coming at media that you've been in the Twitter spaces, which I do as well. And I have kind of the same thing. I think it's cathartic in some ways too. It gives you an opportunity to just be like, look, you guys need to know this information. I have it, but it doesn't help me. It has to help all of us, you know, that kind of thing. So I love the the, the kind of the zeal yeah. that you've been running at it with. And, uh, and I hope that all continues. Where can, uh, where can people follow you? Where can they, we, we've called out your handles. What, what do you got in the, on the burner? Do you have any, um, you know, potential jobs that are, that are looking at you or is there or an industry that people could kind of steer you towards? Um, I really want to continue helping out fighting trafficking. So I'm trying to, you know, get in with nonprofits. Um, that's just the world I'm trying, I'm trying to navigate. I'm still doing it by myself too. I'm still doing my own research and like, I'm right now talking to case managers, uh, domestic fostering, by the way, too, but the case managers, uh, previous whistleblowers, Parents that were inside the system that know about it, volunteers that know about these things, because they've hit me up on Twitter, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you. <laughs> What's up, man? So I've I've talked to quite a few of them, about at least about a half dozen or so, but like really getting into and understanding things. And these are people that have like a decade in the system. Um, I've talked to former survivors, and that those are the those are hard. Like those are really difficult to listen to, but it's good to know, right? And but yeah, so I'm I mean I'm on Twitter, um, Twitter Truth and Gab under that same handle. Gab, I don't really do a whole lot on only because that's more of like a, I'm letting it build. And I kind of go on there for more like to, you know, I check out memes. I, I read more conversations. I, you know, those kind of stuff. Okay. I'm most active on Twitter right now because the engagement's really high. I want to build it on truth as well. Just waiting for the day that Elon's not there. Um, but yeah, and then otherwise, um, you know, I, I try to join conversations all the time. So whenever I can. So folks, if you want to follow Aaron, you can follow him from the show notes on any of the platforms that you're looking on. And then uh, we'll tag him uh, as we release this thing. So if you're finding this through, obviously through Twitter or through uh, Truth, which are my two big platforms I do, there'll be uh, links in his, I'll tag his handles. You can find it real easily. Uh, once again, I, you know, and I follow him as well. I, I, I like what he's got to say out there. I think it's really important. Aaron, I do appreciate you spending this time um, on this, this sort of later evening folks, we broadcast this on Monday morning, but we shoot this over the weekend for you so that you have it first thing in the morning and you got it for this whole week. I know we went a little bit long. Um, I think sometimes this information, there should be no time limit on it. So I try not to worry about that for our Mondays. Um, so that is, that is the scoop. That is, uh, we'll probably bring you back on again too. And we'll talk maybe counterintelligence threats, uh, Southern border. Cause I think there's uh, some visibility there that you and I probably have some, uh, we'll give it some time for let people to kind of chew on this and, and to reach out to you. But uh, folks, you've been listening to the Kyle Serafin show. If you do like these kind of conversations, if you enjoy what you had to hear, please hit that subscribe button. Uh, you can find us on, where can you find us? You can find us on Rumble. You can find us on Apple. You can find us on uh, Spotify. You can find us on iHeartRadio. You can find us on pretty much anywhere that you get podcasts. I'd added like 12 or 13 more of these this uh, this week. Samsung has us now, something called Pod Addicts. I don't know. You name it. If you can't find us, you hit me in the DMs and let me know because I will add us 
to these podcast engines. Um, we do appreciate it if you share it with your friends, if you like what you have to hear. If you got a bunch of friends, you can share it with a bunch of friends. And uh, if you did enjoy it, or if there's something in particular that really tweaked you on any given episode, give us one of those five-star reviews on the Apple Podcast area, and uh, we'll read them on the show like this one here. This one is by Joseph Beaton, B-E-A-T-O-N, sent off this Wednesday, and the, the review is Truth Matters. 2A ensures every other am- amendment to the Constitution Insist on your right to speak the truth. God will punish the wicked who bear false witness. That sounds a lot like my buddy, the GOB actual, my friend uh, Garrett Neighbors. I'm sorry, my, my friend Garrett uh, O'Boyle. Uh, he has a lot to say about those who bear false witness. So we do appreciate that, Joseph. Thanks for the, uh, for the feedback. And folks, you have been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. We will catch you again on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.